Frightening Tales. I'm your host, Justin the Ghoul Man Redman, president of the K Ghoul Horror Film Club and investigator for Burgers. I am joined by the man with the 12th degree black belt in Pew Jitsu, the master flamethrower, Tommy. We're not going any further until we address this situation that you got going on. You are still very long in the tooth there, son, and I'm not going to take it too much more. You're sitting over there with your bottle of true blood. You got another little, like, blood bag thing of stuff. You're starting to dress all dracula and all, and I don't know how I'm liking this very well. Man, I told you, it was just a dentist. He's got this great dental implant doc- from Dr. Al Ucard. I'm telling you, dude, that name is Dracula, Dr. Dracula. And who would, in their right mind, would give Dracula a dentist license? Man, it only took like a bite or two just to get his uh, these cool implants. That's it. I'm busting it out. What do you got there? Well, I broke out my vampire deterrent kit. I've got a few choice weapons for you right here. Since we discussed last week that we're not too certain on how to get rid of Dracula and there's all kinds of funny ways in folklore on how to kill a vampire, I figured the best way to do it is to use every method possible. So first, I got my super soaker here. It's filled with holy water infused with garlic for that extra little kick, just in case I need it. And then I have a wide assortment of steaks right here. Silver, oak, hickory, chestnut, whatever wood it takes, I'm going to stake that heart. If that don't work, here's a surefire way. Dante, he will take care of anything. I see Dante, and I see your assortment of weapons. If Dante's the surefire way, who's that? Oh, that's Big Bertha. Her and I are going to use these. Pliers. That's right. If not everything else works, Big Bertha the Vampire Slayer here is going to sit on you, and I'm going to pull those teeth right on out. We're going to chop you up and send you to all kinds of places like Abu Dhabi. All right, Tommy, back off, back off. These things are not real. They're fake. See? Where in the world did you get those? I got them from a fangsmith in New Orleans. There's such a thing as a fangsmith? Yeah, they got people that all over this country that will make fangs for you, and you get and they just pop right in over your teeth. They're much better than any other prop that you'll ever find out there in the market. You traveled to New Orleans recently? No, no, no. I've had these for a while now. Uh, I've used these for multiple uh, costumes, and I mainly had them made for the vampire balls that my wife and I used to go to. <laughs> vampire balls. Haha, <laughs> very funny. But no, vampire balls are very popular in New Orleans. You got the Lestat vampire ball or the Anne Rice vampire ball in New Orleans. That's the most popular of them, and they always... Or packed. But we never went to that one. We went to the Endless Night Vampire Ball, which seems to be the same weekend as the other ball. But we like the people there a little bit better. Uh, and But these people tend to believe they are vampires, or they identify as vampires. And we went for a good four or five years. We would spend our Halloween weekends there, or at least the weekend after Halloween. Or It was always kind of the last... The last weekend in October, maybe the first weekend in November. 
we stopped going for various reasons. One being we became parents. That's the major one. So now we like to celebrate Halloween with the kids. The other was that people. There just started to be way too many people in New Orleans. The first two that we went to, there was barely anybody in New Orleans. And I'm not talking about people at the ball. I'm talking about the crowd and the city in general. It used to be the first two, or for the first two years, we used to go, be able to walk around, enjoy the shops. Then about like the third year, there was an uptick of people, and it was harder to move around the city, and it was harder to get into restaurants. It was harder to get into the local shops, especially the ones that we loved, which I'll talk about a shop that we loved in another segment or two. And uh, it just got to be a point. It was just that much of a hassle. But we went because... There was all kinds of events to do. They would have um, like a vampire court, and the the ball always took uh, the ball always is at the House of Blues. And House of Blues is a weird place to begin with. No phone cameras, no taking pictures. If you take any pictures in there, the House of Blues has the copyright of that picture, which kind of sucks. So you didn't really go in taking a whole lot of pictures, and boy, would they would never let my kind of camera in. That's the stinker, because I love my camera. Of course, I probably wouldn't bring it in with that many people to begin with. Yeah, you are pretty protective of that camera. I've seen you walking around carrying that thing like it's a football, even though the strap's around your neck. But we liked meeting some of the people in the court. Uh, there was a bunch of characters there, and a lot of, and a bunch of them, or and a few of them actually lived in New Orleans, and those are the ones we made friends with. Now, the ball is very uh, structured, I should say, or has some, has some rules besides the camera rule. You couldn't wear street clothes inside of this ball. You had to either dress up in costume and along with a theme or come in a tux. So we always like to do the theme, and those were fun. We, we've had the steampunk. We had the Red Riding Hood and uh, Vampire, uh, you know. I've always been more inclined or connected to werewolves than I've been with the vampires, but I still had fun pretending to be a vampire. It was a great excuse to get some of these, uh, some of these uh, old Western style kind of vests. It was a pretty cool time to, to get that kind of stuff. Uh, it, it's, I remember a lot of them. I remember some of the music. One year, the first year we went, the music was absolutely crazy. I loved it. And then next year, the music was horrible. You had some little guy up there. He was like, oh, I'm a dragon, and I wrote this song for such and such, or I... And he was did this between every song. He t- would tell us the story of it, and we didn't care. We wanted the music. He kept interrupting our vibe, as the children would say. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound like my kind of show. Now, there is one problem with House of Blues. They do not know how to manage their sound. They get in there and they crank it up all the way. That's why I just start bringing earplugs with me when I go to the House of Blues. Because one year I went and my ears ringed for the rest of the weekend. And I cannot stand that. That was the most annoying thing ever. So I made sure that the following year that I had earplugs. So you said you made friends with these people in uh, New Orleans. Whatever happened to them? Well, one got in trouble with the law. I ain't going to quite uh, describe what he got in trouble with. I learned this about uh, sometime last year that he was arrested and was in jail. Uh, He was a vampire tour guide in New Orleans. He would take groups of tourists around and he would give all the vampire locations. Like 
the nuns, the uh, the stories of the vampires that would walk the streets. And he always had this cool little trick at the end, which nobody was able to figure out how he did it. At the end of his tour, he would show the, how he was really a vampire. So he would take his long fingernails, claw into his skin, make himself bleed, and then he healed himself. That was correct. He healed himself. Nobody ever figured it out. And I never asked him what his trick was. I'm pretty certain it was like some little skin pad that he had on there that he just kind of slide a hand, pulled it away. Cause, and when you're a tour guide and you're telling stories, you have to have some kind of sleight of hand. Now, another, his one of his helpers or apprentices that was also a tour guide, he's the one that my wife and I really became close. He ended up moving, him and his wife ended up moving to Canada. So that was kind of weird for us because we were going to use his wife, or we we're going to pay his wife to teach our daughter how to play violin because that's what she does. She plays violin for a living. She goes to weddings, parties, and all the other things and plays the violin. So it's a pretty cool part. And then others moved away. And then some of the friends that we made there, we, we separated because of political ideologies. I know it's the saddest thing in the world to be, to have a friend who says, you know, we're not going to be friends anymore because you believe this. Well, just because I believe that doesn't mean, I mean, it was, it was, it was trivial. So pretty much anybody out of there, we have not been friends with. And the last thing I'm going to say about the New Orleans vampire community is they are easily triggered. And I'm not meaning political, and I'm not meaning political or hate speech or whatever is pushed in the media. No, they, they get off by the simplest things. Oh, you borrowed a piece of costume. No, I didn't. And then there's infighting. And that's not just the New Orleans vampire community. I noticed that with, with the Austin, Texas vampire community. And I, now Granted, I have not kept up with them in years, so I don't know what their current status are. Are they still here or not? But all I know is that I somewhat miss it, but I don't. I enjoy life better now here on this side of the lake and not have to deal with their petty little drama. But they were fun times indeed. Okay, let's get back to Dracula here on Frightening Tales. Episode 7, Dracula's Victory. Van Helsing has come to London at the call of his student, Dr. Seward. As our story continues, Van Helsing and Dr. Seward are battling the forces of evil for the life of Miss Lucy Westenray. Lucy Westenray's Diary, 12 September, 1897. How good they all are to me. I quite love that dear Dr. Van Helsing. I wonder why he was so anxious about these flowers. He positively frightened me. He was so fierce. And yet he must have been right, for I feel comfort from them already. Somehow I do not dread being alone tonight, and I can go to sleep without fear. Such a terrible struggle I have had against sleep these last few days. The pain of the sleeplessness, or the pain of the fear of sleep, with such unknown horrors as it has for me, how blessed are some people whose lives have no fears, no dreads, to whom sleep is a blessing that comes nightly and brings nothing but sweet dreams. Dr. Seward's Diary
Van Helsing and I arrived at the Western Ray home in Hillingham at eight o'clock. It was a lovely morning. The bright sunshine and all the fresh feeling of early autumn seemed like the completion of nature's annual work. The leaves were turning to all kinds of beautiful colors, but had not yet begun to drop from the trees. When we entered, we met Mrs. Weston Ray coming out of the morning room. She is always an early riser. She greeted us warmly and said, You will be glad to know that Lucy is better. The dear child is still asleep. I looked into her room and saw her, but did not go in, lest I should disturb her. Aha! I thought I had diagnosed the case. My treatment is working. You must not take all the credit to yourself, Doctor. Lucy's state this morning is due in part to me. How do you mean, madam? Well, I was anxious about the dear child in the night and went into her room. She was sleeping soundly, so soundly that even my coming did not wake her. But the room was awfully stuffy. There were a lot of those horrible, strong-smelling flowers about everywhere, and she had actually a bunch of them round her neck. I feared that the heavy odor would be too much for the dear child in her weak state, so I took them all away and opened a bit of the window to let in a little fresh air. You will be pleased with her, I'm sure. You removed the garlic flowers? Garlic? No wonder they bore such an odor. My goodness, Professor, I fail to see your reasoning. What the poor girl needs is fresh air. Dear madam, the best of medicines are taken from nature's bounty, and sometimes that which is not pleasing to the senses is most healing to the body. Perhaps you are correct. In this case, I am sure of it. I must ask, therefore, that you and your staff follow my directives in all matters until we have brought the young lady back to good health. Well, if you insist. Indeed, I do. She moved off into her boudoir, where she usually breakfasted early. As she had spoken, I watched the professor's face and saw it turn ashen gray. He had been able to retain his self-command whilst the poor lady was present, for he knew her state and how mischievous a shock would be. He actually smiled on her as he had held open the door for her to pass into her room. But the instant she had disappeared, he pulled me suddenly and forcibly into the dining room and closed the door. Then, for the first time in my life, I saw Van Helsing break down. He raised his hands over his head in a sort of mute despair, and then he beat his palms together in a helpless way. Finally, he sat down on a chair and turned to me. My God! My God! What have we done? What has this poor thing done that we are so sore beset? Is there fate amongst us still, sent down from the pagan world of old, that such things must be, and in such way? This poor mother, all unknowing and all for the best as she think, does such thing as lose her daughter, body and soul. And we must not tell her. We must not even warn her, or she die. And then both die. Oh, how we are beset. How are all the powers of the devils against us? Dr. Van Helsing, we must not surrender. You are correct. Come, we must see and act. 
Devils or no devils, or all the devils at once, it matters not. We fight him all the same. Quick, to her room. Draw back the blinds. I will see to our patient. Is she all right? It is as I expected. must have another transfusion. No. Today, you must operate. I shall provide. You are weakened already. As he spoke, he took off his coat and rolled up his shirt sleeve. Again the operation. Again the narcotic. Again some return of color to her ashen face and the regular breathing of healthy sleep. Before we left, Van Helsing again told Mrs. Westenray that she must not remove anything from Lucy's room without consulting him, and the flowers were of medicinal value, and that the breathing of their odor was a part of the system of cure. Having done all that could be done, we took our leave, Van Helsing returning to the Barclay Hotel, and I to the asylum. I was engaged after dinner in my study, posting up my books. Van Helsing would be arriving soon, as we were to discuss our future plans for Lucy's treatment. Suddenly, my office door burst open, and there stood Ringfield, in an apparent mad frenzy, and with a dinner knife in his hand. The blood is the life, Ringfield. Stand where you are. Oh, no, Doctor. Not until we've had a bit of your blood, eh? You've cut me. What has happened here? He's attacked me. It's Rinfield, the patient I've spoken of. You have spilled much blood. And I have little enough to spare. John, look. Your patient. Rinfield had cut me at the wrist, and the wound had bled freely for a few moments. I had just now occupied myself binding the wound, and as I returned my attention to Rinfield... I was sickened by his activity. He was lying on his belly, on the floor, licking up like a dog the blood which had fallen from my wounded wrist. The blood is the life. The blood is the life. This is insane, beyond my comprehension. You must brace yourself, my friend. This is but the beginning. It will require all of your strength and character to see the things which you will see and do the works which you must do in the days ahead. May I speak with your patient? He appears satiated and has calmed himself. Do what you will. I am baffled. Mr. Renfield? Renfield? Answer the man. This old man is of no interest to me. Renfield! No, no, it is all right. Perhaps your patient has lost interest in life eternal. What's that you say? Or those who live beyond the grave. What? Who are you? How do you know these things? You see, Mr. Renfield, I am not of this country. 
I come from a land of dark forests where we have ancient castles and remember the ancient ways. Do I interest you now? I am indeed curious, as I thought you would be. I could see that Van Helsing had removed a crucifix from his coat pocket and was holding it behind his back out of Renville's view. It was not large or small, about six inches in length and appeared to be made of fine silver. It glistened in the lamplight. In fact, Mr. Renfield, I have a gift for your master. Perhaps you would be so kind as to deliver it to him next you meet. A gift? For the master? What manner of gift? Just this. Here, take it. Why do you shudder? You are a dangerous man. I should hope so. And a foolish man. You tempt his wrath, not mine. What is your name? I am Van Helsing. What is your master's name? The master has many names. So says the ancient text. Renfield fell silent and soon returned quite calmly to his cell. I asked Van Helsing what was the meaning of his exchange with my patient and why did the crucifix have such a powerful influence upon him. But Van Helsing, like Renfield, would speak no more only saying that he will explain in time. But for now, know this. This Renfield is most important. You must keep a keen watch upon him. Record all movements, all speech. This patient of yours is a pawn, yet he may deliver the king. Memorandum, left by Lucy Weston Ray, 17 September, night. I write this and leave it to be seen, so that no one may by any chance get into trouble through me. This is an exact record of what took place tonight. I feel I am dying of weakness and have barely strength to write, but it must be done if I die in the doing. I went to bed as usual, taking care that the flowers were placed as Dr. Van Helsing directed, and soon fell asleep. I was wakened by some flapping sound at the window. I tried to return to sleep, but could not. Then there came to me the old fear of sleep, and I determined to keep awake. Presently the door opened, and Mother came in and sat by me. Just then the flapping and buffeting came to the window again. She was startled and a little frightened. I tried to pacify her and at last succeeded and she lay down on the bed to rest. But I could hear her poor dear heart still beating terribly. After a while there was a low howl again out of the shrubbery and then a crash at the window. The wind rushed in and in the aperture of the broken panes, there was the head of a great gray wolf. Mother cried out in a fright, pointing at the wolf. 
Then a strange and horrible sound came from her throat, and she fell across me, clutching her heart. The room and all round seemed to spin round. I kept my eyes fixed on the window, but the wolf drew his head back, and a whole myriad of little specks seemed to come blowing in through the broken window and wheeling and circling round like diamonds of dust shimmering in the moonlight. I tried to stir, but the swirling and shimmering specks held some spell over me, and I could not move. My dear mother's heart had ceased to beat, and now she lay dead beside me. The room seemed to be spinning madly. I managed to rise from the bed and leave my room in search of the servants. I descended to the dining room to look for them. My heart sank when I saw what had happened. They all four lay helpless on the floor, breathing heavily. What am I to do? What am I to do? I am back in the room with Mother. I cannot leave her, and I am alone, save for the sleeping servants, whom someone has drugged. Alone with the dead. I dare not go out, for I can hear the low howl of the wolf through the broken window. The air seems full of specks, floating and circling in the draft from the window, and the lights burn blue and dim. What am I to do? God shield me from harm this night. I shall hide this paper in my breast, where they shall find it when they come to lay me out. My dear mother, gone. Time that I go too. Goodbye, dear Arthur. If I should not survive this night, God keep you and God help me. Eighteen September, morning. Having received an urgent dispatch from Van Helsing, I drove to Hillingham and arrived early, knocked at the front door, and received no answer. Circling the house, I found no means of ingress. As I did so, I heard the rapid pit-pat of a swiftly driven horse's feet. They stopped at the gate, and a few seconds later I met Van Helsing running up the avenue. Are you just arrived? How is she? Are we too late? She did not get my telegram. I only received your telegram early this morning and have not lost a minute in coming here. I've just been knocking and cannot make anyone in the house hear me. Then I fear we are too late. God's will be done. Come. If there be no way open to get in, we must make one. Time is all in all to us now. We went round to the back of the house, where there was a kitchen window. The professor took a small surgical saw from his case and, handing it to me, pointed to the iron bars which guarded the window. I attacked them at once and had very soon cut through three of them. Then, with a long, thin knife, we pushed back the fastening of the sashes and opened the window. I helped the professor in and followed him. There was no one in the kitchen or in the servants' rooms, which were close at hand. We tried all the rooms as we went along, and in the dining room, dimly lit by rays of light through the shutters, found four servant women lying on the floor. There was no need to think them dead, for their heavy breathing and the acrid smell of laudanum in the room left no doubt as to their condition. We can attend to them later. We must go to Miss Lucy. We ascended to Lucy's room. How shall I describe what we saw? On the bed lay two women, Lucy and her mother. 
The latter lay farthest in, and she was covered with a white sheet, the edge of which had been blown back by the draught through the broken window, showing the drawn white face with a look of terror fixed upon it. By her side lay Lucy, with face white and still more drawn. The flowers which had been round her neck we found upon her mother's bosom, and her throat was bare, showing the two little wounds which we had noticed before, but looking horribly white and mangled. It is not yet too late. Quick, go get heat and fire a warm bath. This poor soul is nearly as cold as that beside her. She will need be heated before we can do anything more. I got a bath and we carried Lucy out as she was and placed her in it. We busied ourselves chafing her limbs to bring back the circulation to her blood. Never in all my experience had I seen Van Helsing work in such deadly earnest. You are correct, Professor. We are in a stand-up fight with death, aren't we? If that were all, I would stop here where we are now and let her fade away into peace for I see no light in life over her horizon. The heat is beginning to have effect. Bring my stethoscope. It is there beside you. Hmm. It beats. The first game is ours. Check to the king. We took Lucy into another room and laid her in bed. Van Helsing tied a soft silk handkerchief round her throat. She was still unconscious, but had regular breath. What are we to do now? Where are we to turn for help? We must have another transfusion of blood, and that soon, or that poor girl's life won't be worth an hour's purchase. You are exhausted already. I am exhausted too. I fear to trust those women, even if they would have the courage to submit. What are we to do for someone who will open his veins for her? How about some strong American blood? Quincy! Quincy Morris! But what brought you here? I guess art is the cause. Here's his telegram. Let me see. Have not heard from Seward for three days, and am terribly anxious. Cannot leave. Father still in same condition. Send me word how Lucy is... Do not delay, Homewood. I think I came just in the nick of time. You know you have only to tell me what to do. A brave man's blood is the best thing on this earth when a woman is in trouble. You're a man, and no mistake. Well, the devil may work against us for all he's worth, but God sends us men when we want them. She has blood. The American, Quincy, he rests too. Here, read this. It dropped from Lucy's breast when we carried her to the bath. In God's name, what does it all mean? Was she or is she mad? Or what sort of horrible danger is it? You shall know and understand it all in good time, but it will be later. As for now... We must gather our forces. This American is strong and brave. We must bring him to our cause. Also, Arthur, the lover of this poor child, must come. Hello, John. Dr. Van Helsing. Arthur! But... 
Your father... Father has passed away. My place is here now. How is your condition? Come. You shall see. Lucy was breathing somewhat stertorously, and her face was at its worst, for the open mouth showed the pale gums. Her teeth, in the dim, uncertain light, seemed longer and sharper than they had been in the morning. In particular, by some trick of the light, the canine teeth looked more pointed than the rest. When Ben Helsing saw this, I could hear the sissing indraw of his breath, and he said to me in a sharp whisper, Draw up the blind. I want light. My God! Come, John. Look. The wounds on the throat have absolutely disappeared. She is dying. It will not be long now. It will be much different. Mark me. Whether she dies conscious or in her sleep. Bring that poor boy and let him come and see the last. Arthur, my dear old fellow, summon all your fortitude. It will be best and easiest for her. What do you mean? Young man, come here to the bed. When we came to the bed, Lucy opened her eyes and seeing Arthur whispered softly, Arthur, oh my love. He was stooped to kiss her when Van Helsing motioned him back. No, not yet. Hold her hand. It will comfort her more. So Arthur took her hand and knelt beside her, and she looked her best with all the soft lines matching the angelic beauty of her eyes. Then gradually her eyes closed, and she sank to sleep. For a little bit her breast heaved softly, and her breath came and went like a tired child's. And then, insensibly, there came the strange change which I had noticed in the night. Her breathing grew stertorous. The mouth opened and the pale gums drawn back made the teeth look longer and sharper than ever. In a sort of sleep-waking, vague, unconscious way, she opened her eyes, which were now dull and hard at once, and said in a soft, voluptuous voice, such as I had never heard from her lips, Arthur? Oh, my love. I'm so glad you have come. Come here. Kiss me. Mother bent eagerly over to kiss her, but at that instant Van Helsing, who, like me, had been startled by her voice, swooped upon him, and catching him by the neck with both hands, dragged him back with a fury of strength which I had never thought he could have possessed, and actually hurled him almost across the room. Not for your life. Not for your living soul and hers. And he stood between them like a lion at bay. Arthur was so taken aback that he did not for a moment know what to do or say. And before any impulse of violence could seize him, he realized the place and the occasion and stood silent, waiting. I kept my eyes fixed on Lucy, as did Van Helsing, and we saw a spasm of rage flit like a shadow over her face. The sharp teeth champed together. Then her eyes closed and she breathed heavily. Very shortly after, she opened her eyes in all their softness and, putting out her poor thin hand, took Van Helsing's great brown one. Drawing it to her, she kissed it. My friend, my true friend. Oh, guard him 
and give me peace? I swear it. Arthur, come, my child. Take her hand in yours and kiss her on the forehead and only once. Their eyes met instead of their lips, and so they parted. Lucy's eyes closed, and Van Helsing, who had been watching closely, took Arthur's arm and drew him away. And then Lucy's breathing became stertorous again. And all at once, it ceased. It is all over. She is dead. I took Arthur by the arm and led him away to the drawing room where he sat down and covered his face with his hands, sobbing in a way that nearly broke me down to see. I went back to the room and found Van Helsing looking at poor Lucy, and his face was sterner than ever. Some change had come over her body. Death had given back part of her beauty, for her brow and cheeks had recovered some of their flowing lines. Even the lips had lost their deadly pallor. It was as if the blood, no longer needed for the working of the heart, had gone to make the harshness of death as little rude as might be. We thought her dying whilst she slept, and sleeping when she died. There is peace for her at last. It is the end. Not so, alas, not so. It is only the beginning. When I asked him what he meant... He only shook his head and answered, We can do nothing as yet. Wait and see. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. I am your host, Justin, the Ghoul Man, and I'm joined by Tommy, who is still giving me that evil eye. He doesn't believe that these fangs that I have are fake. He still thinks I might bite him. Damn, Skippy, son. I'm keeping my eye on you, though. So far this evening, we've been talking about vampires. I talked a little bit in the last segment about the New Orleans vampires and the vampire balls themselves and how much fun they were to attend. And that if I were to go back and go to one of the balls this year or next year, I would have to save up a pretty penny. So before I move on to my next subject, let's talk about that vampire ball. Because... It used to cost us, between me and my wife, $300 for our tickets alone. That's VIP, extra special, blah, blah, blah. And then whatever our hotel was for the weekend. I mean, we, yeah, we would drop about $600. Today, if you wanted to get a good ticket, it's going to cost you like $500 for the both of us. If you really want the super extra special package, it's going to cost over $1,200. So as you can see, I'm not going to a vampire ball anytime soon because that's just outrageous. It's that popular, but you know what? The House of Blues is not worth it. I've been to several concerts inside the House of Blues and I've absolutely hated it. And the food is kind of mid to say the least. Now, while we're still on the subject of New Orleans and vampires, now I'm not going to go into all the vampire stories in New Orleans. There's too many to do. Maybe I'll have to dedicate an entire episode to New Orleans vampires, and that's going to take a little bit of more work. But let me talk about one of my favorite places when I'm in New Orleans, Boutique de Vampire. 
That's right. There is a vampire boutique in New Orleans. They specialize in a lot of stuff. In fact, that's where I had my fangs made. That's where I met the fangsmith maven. You know, he, he sits there. He's got appointments. He he puts the plaster and everything in, and he just kind of sharpens them up and gets you voila, fangs. But that's not the only thing they have there. They've got a various assortments of vampire books, New Orleans books, New Orleans history's book. I can tell you the owners absolutely love New Orleans. They opened up a restaurant next to it, which we haven't tried because New Orleans is not exactly the safest place. Yeah, you're going to need like Vera just to get in the end of that city nowadays. So a lot of it, we, we just haven't been because... New Orleans is just not that safe, and it seems like it's always crowded anyway. It was the boutique where we discovered vampire chocolate. I remember you talking about that on Valentine's Day. Man, got any of that chocolate left? No, but I ordered some from the site. Here, you want some? Oh, yeah. See what I'm saying? The best chocolate out there is vampire chocolate. Get the dark chocolate. I'm very partial to dark chocolate, by the way. Uh, if it's got dark chocolate in it, I'm most likely to try it. Now, Boutique the Vampire doesn't really sell the chocolate during the uh, summer months. Why not? Because it's hot and they don't have AC over there. Oh, no one wants melted chocolate. Not at all. Yeah, I, I, I don't either. At least in their old location. They, they do like to move quite a bit. But since they've opened that restaurant, I'm pretty certain they've stayed in one place. Man, talking about this, we might need to go ahead and just go plan a trip to New Orleans. Get in one of those uh, quick raids. Get in, you get out. Yeah, there'd probably be a quick raid because most of the other shops that my wife and I, when we went to New Orleans, they've closed. And that was pre uh, They closed before the pandemic. Oh, that's a bummer. Oh, I know, because that's where I got some cool gear. But if you're ever in New Orleans, get on that Google map and go to Boutique de Vampire. They spell it with a Y, so uh, there, there, there's a little hint for you. Great little place to check out amongst the other shops that are in New Orleans, at least what used to be there. And uh, if you want a restaurant recommendation, I can't offer you one because they come and go, and there's a lot of good ones there. So just pick the one that has the, <laughs> the least amount of people waiting to get in. Let's go ahead and return to Dracula, because we got a lot of story left. And when we come back, I'm going to give you a couple vampire movies. A little, little fun taste of vampire movies and vampire books. You're listening to Frightening Tales. Episode 8, The Good and the Evil. Lucy Westenray has died. The first victim of Count Dracula since his arrival in England. Only Dr. Van Helsing realizes that Miss Lucy is not dead, but undead, an unwilling disciple of the vampire. The funeral was arranged for the next succeeding day so that Lucy and her mother might be buried together. I attended to all the ghastly formalities even as the urbane undertaker and his staff went about their business with that rare obsequious suavete inherent to those of his vocation. Then Helsing and I took it upon ourselves to examine papers and so forth. He insisted upon looking over Lucy's papers himself. Will you find anything of the solicitor who is for the late Mrs. Westenray, seal all her papers and write him tonight. Should you discover any writings of Miss Lucy, hold them for me. 
It is not well that her very thoughts go into the hands of strangers. Now, I must search for what may be in the room of Miss Lucy. I went on with my part of the work, and in another half hour had found the name and address of Mrs. Westenray's solicitor, and had written to him. All the poor lady's papers were in order. Explicit directions regarding the place of burial were given. I had hardly sealed the letter when Van Helsing walked in the room, saying, Can I help you, friend John? I am free, and if I may, my service is to you. Have you got what you looked for? I did not look for any specific thing. I only hoped to find, and find I have, all that there was. Only some letters and a few memoranda, and a diary new begun. But I have them here, and we shall for the present say nothing of them. I shall see that poor lad Arthur tomorrow evening, and with his sanction, I shall use some. And now, friend John, I think we may to bed. We want sleep, both you and I, and rest to recuperate. Tomorrow we shall have much to do. But for the tonight, there is no need of us. Before turning in, we went to look at poor Lucy. The undertaker had certainly done his work well, for the room was turned into a small chapelle ardente. There was a wilderness of beautiful white flowers, and death was made as little repulsive as might be. The end of the winding sheet was laid over the face. The professor bent over and turned it gently back. We both started at the beauty before us, the tall wax candles showing a sufficient light to note it well. All Lucy's loveliness had come back to her in death, and the hours that had passed, instead of leaving traces of decay's effacing fingers, had instead restored the beauty of life, till positively I could not believe my eyes that I was looking at a corpse. as I expected. He took from his neck inside his collar a little gold crucifix and placed it over the mouth. She may yet be saved. What do you mean? Tomorrow, I want you to bring me, before night, a set of post-mortem knives. Must we make an autopsy? Yes and no. I want to operate, but not as you think. Let me tell you now, but... Not a word to another. I want to cut off her head and take out her heart. In heaven's name! Ah, you, a surgeon, and so shocked. Fear not, for it is I that shall operate, and you must only help. I would like to do it tonight, but Arthur will arrive tomorrow, and he will want to see her. To see it. After all farewells are said, when she is coffined and ready for the next day, you and I shall come when all sleep. We shall unscrew the coffin lid and shall do our operation and then replace all so that none know save we alone. But why do it at all? The girl is dead. Why mutilate her poor body without need? There is no necessity for a post-mortem and nothing to gain by it. No good to her, to us, to science, to human knowledge. Without such need, it is monstrous. John, I pity your poor bleeding heart. And I love you the more because it does so bleed. If I could, I would take on myself the burden that you do bear. 
But there are things that you know not, but that you shall know, and bless me for knowing, though they are not pleasant things. Were you not amazed, nay, horrified, when I would not let Arthur kiss his love, though she was dying, and snatched him away by all my strength? Yes, and yet you saw how she thanked me with her so beautiful dying eyes, her voice too so weak, and she kissed my rough old hand and blessed me. And did you not hear me swear promise to her? That so she closed her eyes, grateful. I do recall. Well, but... I have good reason now for all I want to do. You have for many years trusted me. You have believed me these weeks past, when there be things so strange that you might have well doubt. Friend John, there are strange and terrible days before us. Let us not be two, but one. And so we work to a good end. Will you not have faith in me? I do acquiesce with reservations. It is enough. I held my door open as he went away and watched him go into his room and close the door. As I stood without moving, I saw one of the maids pass silently along the passage, and she had her back towards me, so did not see me and go into the room where Lucy lay. The sight touched me. Devotion is so rare, and we are so grateful to those who show it, unasked to those we love. I must have slept long and soundly, for it was broad daylight when Van Helsing waked me by coming into my room. He came over to my bedside and said, You need not trouble about the knives. We shall not do it. Why not? Because it is too late, or too early. See, this was stolen in the night. Your gold crucifix. How is it stolen since you have it now? Because I get it back from the worthless wretch who did steal it. Back from the woman who robbed the dead. And the living. Now we can only wait. Wait? Wait for what? For the beginning to end. And the end to begin. Dr. Van Helsing... Each day you leave me more puzzled. In time, my friend, all in time. There are many pieces to the puzzle, eh? For now, you will prepare for the arrival of the young man, Arthur. And I must write to a young lady. Do you have the acquaintance of Mrs. Mina Harker, or rather, Miss Mina Murray? Why, yes. I believe her to be a dear friend of Lucy's. Is Mina a part of this? It is so. And also her new husband, Mr. Jonathan Harker. I fear I shall never follow your reasoning. Fear? You speak of fear? Watch. Listen. Learn. When truly you do understand, then you will know fear. Early the next day, Arthur Homewood arrived. Poor fellow. He looked desperately sad and broken. Even his stalwart manhood seemed to have shrunk somewhat under the strain of his much-tried emotions. With me, he was as warm as ever, and to Van Helsing, he was courteous. But I could not help seeing that there was some constraint with him. The professor noticed it, too, and motioned me to bring him upstairs. I did so and left him at the door of the room, 
as I felt he would like to be quite alone with her, but he took my arm and led me in, saying, You loved her too, old fellow. She told me all about it. There was no friend had a closer place in her heart than you. I don't know how to thank you for all you've done for her. I only wish I could have done more. Oh, Jack, what shall I do? The whole of life seems gone from me all at once, and there is nothing in the wide world for me to live for. Come and look at her. Jack, is she really dead? It is so, Arthur. It often happens that after death faces become softened and even resolved into their youthful beauty, especially so when death is preceded by such acute and prolonged suffering. I see. This must be goodbye. Yes. Yes, I understand. May I kiss her farewell? I, well, well, yes, I suppose it would be all right. He took her dead hand in his and kissed it. With a feeling of anticipation for which I cannot account, I watched as he bent over and kissed her lips. Finally, he came away, fondly looking back over his shoulder at her. I left him in the drawing room and went to the study where I found Van Helsing. He asked if she were really dead. I am not surprised. Just now, I doubted for a moment myself. Hello, Dr. Van Helsing. Ah, young Arthur. Come in, come in. You have seen her and said your heart's farewell. Yes, thank you. And let me say that I am at a loss for words to thank you for your goodness to my poor dear. I know that she understood your goodness even better than I do. And if I have been rude or in any way wanting, you must forgive me. I know it has been hard for you to quite trust me. And I take it that you do not... That you cannot trust me now, for you do not yet understand. But the time will come when your trust shall be whole and complete, and then you shall understand as though the sunlight himself shone through. But, Doctor, I do trust you. I shall and always trust you. I know and believe you have a very noble heart, and you are Jack's friend, and you were hers. May I ask you something now? Certainly. You know that Mrs. Westenray left you all her property. Lucy's mother? All property. All letters of both Mrs. Westenray and Miss Lucy. I never thought of it. And as it is all yours, you have a right to deal with it as you will. I want you to give me permission to read all Miss Lucy's papers and letters. Believe me, it is no idle curiosity. I have a motive of which, be sure, she would have approved. I have them all here. I took them before we knew that all was yours, so that no strange hand might touch them, no strange eye look through words into her soul. I shall keep them, if I may. Even you may not see them yet, but I shall keep them safe. No word shall be lost, and in the good time I shall give them back to you. It's a hard thing, I ask, but you will do it, will you not? For Lucy's sake. Dr. Van Helsing, you may do what you will. I feel that in saying this, I am doing what my dear one would have approved. I shall not trouble you with questions till the time comes. 
and you are right. There will be pain for us all, but it will not be all pain, nor will this pain be the last. But we must be brave of heart and unselfish and do our duty, and all will be well. In the train to Exeter, Jonathan sleeping. It seems only yesterday that the last entry was made, and yet how much has come to pass between then? In Whitby and all the world before me, Jonathan away and no news of him, and now married to Jonathan, Jonathan a solicitor, now a partner, master of his business. Mr. Hawkins is dead and buried, a very simple and solemn service. There were only ourselves and the servants there, one or two old friends of his from Exeter, his London agent, and a gentleman representing Sir John Paxton, the president of the Incorporated Law Society. Jonathan and I stood hand in hand, and we felt that our best and dearest friend was gone from us. We came back to town quietly, taking a bus to Hyde Park Corner, and then a walk down to Piccadilly. Jonathan was holding me, when I felt him clutch my arm so tightly that he hurt me, and he said under his breath, My God! What is it? I followed his gaze to a tall, thin man with a beaky nose and black moustache and pointed beard, who was observing a very pretty girl. He was looking at her so hard that he did not notice either of us, and so I had a good view of him. His face was not a good face. It was hard and cruel and sensual. And his big white teeth, that looked all the whiter because his lips were so red, were pointed like an animal's. Jonathan, please, the man will notice your stare. Do you not see who it is? No, dear. I do not know him. Who is it? It is the man himself. Poor dear was evidently terrified at something, very greatly terrified. He kept staring as a man came out of a chemist shop with a small parcel and gave it to the lady, who then drove off. The dark man kept his eyes fixed on her, and when the carriage moved up Piccadilly, he followed in the same direction and hailed a hansom. Jonathan kept looking after him and said as if to himself, I believe it is the Count, but... He has grown so young. My God, if this be so. Oh, my God. Oh, if I only knew. If I only knew. I remained silent and drew him away quietly, and he, holding my arm, came easily. We walked a little further and then went in and sat for a while in the green park. It was a hot day for autumn, and there was a comfortable seat in a shady place. After a few minutes, staring at nothing, Jonathan's eyes closed, and he went quietly into a sleep, with his head on my shoulder. I thought it was the best thing for him, so did not disturb him. In about twenty minutes, he woke up and said to me quite cheerfully, Why, Mina, have I been asleep? Oh, do forgive me for being so rude. We'll have a cup of tea somewhere. He had evidently forgotten all about the dark stranger, 
as in his illness he had forgotten all that this episode had reminded him of. I must somehow learn the facts of his journey abroad. The time is come, I fear, when I must open that parcel and know what is written in the journal. Oh, Jonathan, you will, I know, forgive me if I do wrong, but it is for your own dear sake. Later the same day, I received a telegram from a Dr. Van Helsing, whoever he may be. You will be grieved to hear that Mrs. Westenray died five days ago, and that Lucy died the day before yesterday. They were both buried today. I must speak with you at the earliest opportunity regarding these matters, and also the recent travels of your husband. With deep sympathy and all respect, Van Helsing. Oh, what a wealth of sorrow in a few words. Poor Mrs. Westenray. Poor Lucy. Gone. Gone never to return to us. God, help us all to bear our troubles. And now this request from Van Helsing about Jonathan. I have answered the doctor and asked him to come by the quarter past ten train on the 25th. Mrs. Harker? Dr. Van Helsing. I am Van Helsing. Here, this is for you. And what may this be? It is a copy of the record my husband kept of his journey to Transylvania and his visit to Count Dracula. You know of this man? I do not know what I know. I do not know what I believe. I have taken the liberty of reading Jonathan's journal. I have also received correspondence from John Seward hinting at some terrible business at hand and that I must trust you explicitly. Mm hmm. Perhaps there is hope for our young friend after all. Be that as it may, Doctor, I only ask that you read this manuscript and, if you can, refute or confirm this record. While Dr. Van Helsing read the manuscript, I prepared a simple lunch for the two of us. He had finished reading before we sat at the table, but would say nothing of the matter. Of course, I pressed, but he was firm. After lunch, we returned to the sitting room, and Van Helsing, after making himself comfortable, turned to me. Dear Madam Mina, you may sleep without doubt. Strange and terrible as it is, it is true. I will pledge my life on it. Your Jonathan is a noble fellow, and let me tell you from experience of men that one who would do as he did in going down that wall into that room is not one to be injured in permanence by a shock. His brain and his heart are all right. This, I swear, before I have even seen him. So, be at rest. I have much to ask him. Will you bring him to me? Now. We have little time. This Count, this monster, is indeed in London. You wish to see me, sir? You will sit. And? Mr. Harker, you are in doubt of your own mind, yes? How do you mean? You may rest your mind. 
It is all true. All of it? All of it. The brides? The brides, the dogs, the wolves, the flames, the castle, the gypsies, the heaps of gold, the boxes of rotting earth. All true. All of it. You have cured me already. I was in doubt. And everything took a hue of unreality. I, I did not know what to trust, even the evidence of my own senses. Not knowing what to trust, I did not know what to do. And so had only to keep on working in what had hitherto been the groove of my life. And the groove ceased to avail me, and I mistrusted myself. Doctor, you do not know what it is to doubt everything, even yourself. No, you don't. You couldn't with eyebrows like yours. <laughs> so, you are a physiognomist. I learn more here with each hour. And, my friend, you will pardon praise from an old man, but you are blessed in your wife. She is one of God's women, fashioned by his own hand to show us men and other women that there is a heaven where we can enter and that its light can be here on earth. So true, so sweet, so noble, so little and egoist. And that, let me tell you, is much in this so skeptical and selfish an age. And now I have a great task to do. And at the beginning, it is to know. You can help me now. Will you join me? Does what you do concern the Count? It does. Then I am with you heart and soul. Good. Now we are six. Myself, Madame Mina, Mr. Jonathan, my good friend John Seward, Sir Arthur, and Quincy the brave American. Together, we shall prevail, eh? Huh? Van Helsing's glance fell to the London papers laid about the table. God, so soon. Dr. Van Helsing, are you all right? I must go at once. There is much information which I need draw from you, Jonathan. And you, dear lady. Will you be ready when I should need? We shall await your call. And with scarcely a goodbye, Van Helsing was gone. I wonder what it was that took him away so quickly. I'm sure I cannot say. Here, uh, Mina, what do you make of this in the Gazette? The Hampstead Horror. Another child injured. We have just received intelligence that another child missed last night. Missed last night was only discovered late in the morning under a furze bush at the Shooter's Hill side of Hampstead Heath, which is perhaps less frequented than the other parts. It has the same tiny wound in the throat as has been noticed in other cases. It was terribly weak and looked quite emaciated. It too, when partially restored, had the common story to tell of being lured away by the Bluefer Lady. What say you to this, friend John? You are referring to the small punctures, no doubt. Ah, you are my favorite pupil still. It is worth to teach you. 
Now that you are willing to understand, you have taken the first step to understand. You think then that those so small holes in the children's throats were made by the same that made the holes in Miss Lucy? I suppose so. Then you are wrong. Oh, would it were so. But alas, no. It is worse. Far, far worse. In God's name, Professor Van Helsing, what do you mean? They were made by Miss Lucy. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. I'm your host, Justin the Ghoul Man Redman, and joined by Tommy, who since sent Bertha home. Thank goodness. She was kind of giving me a little nervous. She still uh, had that, uh, that I'm going to pound you in the face look. Oh, Big Bertha. Oh, don't mind her. She's just a sweet, cuddly teddy bear. I don't know about that, Tommy. Yeah, she was quite intimidating. Yeah, she gets that way. So we've been talking a little bit about vampires. We talked about the New Orleans vampire community, the boutique, the vampire in New Orleans. And so let, let's move away from the city that uh, I used to like in some capacity. Okay, let me be honest. I never really liked New Orleans all that much. I liked visiting every once in a while, but it was never this magical place for me like it is for some people. I prefer it over here where there's less buildings and less people. Dude. Have you looked around lately and how crowded our home is getting? I know, our hometown is getting pretty crowded. It's almost time for a wolf to run for the woods again, right? Yeah, you're right about that. Gotta find some good old-fashioned middle-of-the-woods cabin. Have you seen Cabin in the Woods? I sure have. Love that movie. Well, let's get talking about some movies. Now, last week we talked about our five favorite Dracula movies, our fa five favorite Dracula actors with Duncan Rhaegar coming in, number one from Monster Squad. A little flack over that one because Bella Lugosi wasn't in there, but uh, it's all smoothed out. Cool beans, whatever. So now vampire movies in general. For every good vampire movie made, there's five more that are worse. And I'm not talking about Asylum movie production bad. Because Asylum does that on purpose. They do what they call a mockbusters. They take something and they film it in great quality. But then they turn around and make it campy. Now, there is a fine line between campy and horrible. Campy is a bit intentional. You still have a little bit of fun. There's a degree of something in there that is worth watching. Take, for example, Six or Octopus versus Whale Wolf. Casper Van Dien was the good point in the whole movie. He's the whole reason why I continued watching and not shutting it off. Unlike this other movie, it was like Shark Huntress or whatever, that it was so slow, so boring, people didn't even bother to get some good lighting in there. You had an old man that just kind of like, I'm the knowledgeable old man, but I loved your mama, but she never could give me the time of day. That, you know, that kind of stuff annoys me. If I see a trailer and I see that the lighting is just what we call practical lighting, that's it. 
I turned it off because I already know what's going to happen. The acting's going to be horrible. The script is horrible. The story is horrible. There's nothing worth watching on this movie. It's just that bad. I mean, sci-fi can make some bad movies, but you can stick through and watch them because they've got the professional elements that really tie the movie together. And that's the problem that we have in most vampire movies it's, hey, I had this vampire story, let's do it, and it turns out to be something from YouTube where they don't know pacing, they don't know how to create tension, they don't know how to do this, and you end up with spirit Halloween props as your uh, <laughs> for, for your, your props and costumes. It just gets to be that bad. So with that said, you may cringe at this one, but Twilight and the Twilight series are not bad movies kind of a bad story but you gotta look at it twilight it was mostly a romance novel series which is where you're gonna find the vampires hanging out and literary they're romanticized they're 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 idolized basically in books so when they're converted to movies you're gonna at least get a decent quality about them but that's beside the points what are some of my favorite vampire movies well, we got the Lost Boys series. I like the first one, and I like the third one. The the uh, the Tribe, the second one, that was kind of... That, that's bottom of the barrel. The Thirst <laughs> is not much better, but at least you get to bring Edgar Frog back in the Frog Brothers. Now, I want to put a little side note here on The Thirst. When I first learned that The Thirst was going to be released, and they said straight to video, I knew what we were going to get. But if you're a horror fan, straight to video is always where the best movies lie. Now, I did get caught up in the speculation theory, which I'll talk a little bit more about that later when I talk about the new Ghostbusters teaser. But that was one of those movies that I got so caught up on what could it be? What could it be? What could do this? Where are they going to go? How are they going to do this? I watched the first one over and over again. Didn't bother with the second one again. And I got so hung up on what it was going to be and was disappointed. Now, there's some great lines in it. I, I think what kills me for the thirst is mostly the actors. Uh, they look good, but man, I've seen better acting on some of the movies I just got finished bashing. And I think to me, that's what triggers it. It had a great story with great potential. And then, of course, they overused this line. And, and it, it's a lot like the line from Lord of the Rings, uh, Return of the King, that once the orcs said it, that was it. It was in everything that Lord of the Rings happened. And I was like, oh my gosh, can we, can we stop? Especially the video games, because I played several of the Lord of the Rings video games after that. Yeah, that line was a little annoying. I mean, it's like, Oh, it's the time of the orc. It's the time of the orc. How many times the orc can there be? Because you seem to lose every time you pop up. But we're kind of getting away from, from the vampire movies here. Uh, another little vampire movies I did like. Um, other vampire movies I liked were from Anne Rice. Interview with the Vampire, which gets a lot of hate. And then Queen of the Damned. So let's have a little fun with those two movies. We both know they're vampires. The first one seems to follow the first book pretty close to the letter, Interview of the Vampire. It did spark me to read the books one summer, you know, the summer that I was on ship. At the time, there was only four books, Interview of the Vampire, The Vampire Lestat, Queen of the Damned, and Tale of the Body Thief. 
Well, later on that year, Anne Rice would release Mimnock the Devil. Now, now I've read one, two, three, and five. Four, I just couldn't get into. It was just boring. She had a great storyline running from Queen of the Damned, and she just totally bombed it. Yes, we're talking about books. This whole segment is going to mix between movies and books. So let's bring back to the movie. So Interview of the Vampire was a good movie. Great actors, Christian Slater, Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, Kirsten Dunst. Antonio Banderas is in there, which Antonio Banderas plays a very good vampire, by the way. Hello, Armand. <laughs> so that was a, that's an okay movie. I can watch it every once in a while. I haven't bothered to watch the Interview of the Vampire series on AMC. I just, I don't like today's television. So let's move over to Queen of the Damned, starring Stuart Townsend and Aaliyah, probably about the two known, best known actors on there. Now, the problem I have with the Queen of the Damned is that this movie is the vampire Lestat and Queen of the Damned books combined into one. What happened was the studios were about to lose the rights to the movie, and they decided to, hey, we need to hurry up and rush this. Now, Stuart Townsend plays a great Lestat. He looks good as Lestat. And Lestat is kind of uh, been kind of has been sleeping for a couple hundred years. And the music of the time, which that time would have been the 80s, woke him up. It's like, oh, this sounds different. This means that, you know, I, I don't have to hide anymore. I can come out to the opening. And we get that. And then Aaliyah, which is the queen of all vampires, known as Akasha, wakes up and starts realizing, man, there's too many vampires here, and starts killing all the youngins, which we don't really get to see that a whole lot in the movie. It's in the book. She's she's out on a, on a rampage killing all these extra vampires. In the movie, it's just to kill them to get to Lestat. And, of course, the whole backstory between Akasha, how she's created, and everything it is amazing in the mo- or in the book, but left out for the uh, for the movie. So let's get into the unpopular opinion part. Uh oh, I sense a wife beating coming. Yeah, more like a disagreement. My wife absolutely loves Stuart Townsend as Lestat. He is the perfect Lestat in her eyes. I think he did a good job with what he had. I think he's better as Dorian Gray in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. But I think Tom Cruise did the better job of Lestat. Uh, just better acting, better. He took on the role a lot more. Uh, and they also weren't doing, when Interview of the Vampire came out, they weren't doing these cheesy little effects like vampires always hissing or the triple, quadruple exposure as they ran away to show that, oh, they're super fast. When that's not how they did in the book. In the book, it was, they were so fast, they just appeared, and they would be standing there, and you would never know it until they let you know they were there. And so you lost a little mystique. Now, Tom Cruise doesn't have a whole lot in Interview of the Vampire, but the scenes that he's in, he it's his scene. It's not Louie anymore, and I guess, in a way, that's like how Anne Rice wrote the book. Louie was the start of it all, but once she introduced Lestat, it started to become Lestat's story, as you could see when you hit book number two, The Vampire Lestat. Because as the series goes on, you hear less and less of Louis. Now, you want to know the best vampire movie out there. 
All right, let's go visit John Carpenter's Vampires with James Wood. Woods is a vampire hunter, and boy, do they hunt vampires. Now, I can't remember the full villain's name, but I just remember this movie keeps me entertained from beginning to end. It's got a lot of cool lines. It's got a lot of great action. It does one thing that some vampire movies tend to do, and it loses a little bit of the scariness and moves more to action movie. And that can be said about a lot of vampire movies. Look at Underworld, for example. That whole series is an action movie, action sci-fi movie with vampires. There's no real element of horror or scariness in it. It just tends to move into the action side, which I see, which seems to be the flaw in vampire movies because you can't exactly make a vampire very, very scary or uh, without losing some of its charm. Well, that concludes my favorite vampire movies. So if you want to get out there and watch some this weekend, definitely get John Carpenter's The Vampires. Get both Interview the Vampire and The Vampire Lestat and go ahead and watch all three Lost Boy movies. So let's get back to Dracula here on Frightening Tales. Episode 9. The Undead. Recent news stories report of small children being lured away by a beautiful lady in white and being found later unharmed, save for two small punctures in the side of the neck. Dr. Van Helsing has just told Dr. Seward that the lady in white and Miss Lucy are one and the same. For a while, sheer anger mastered me. It was as if he had during her life struck Lucy on the face. I smoked the table hard and rose up as I said to him, Dr. Van Helsing, are you mad? Would I were. Madness were easy to bear compared with truth like this. Oh, my friend, why, think you, did I go so far round? Why take so long to tell you so simple a thing? Was it because I hate you and have hated you all my life? Was it because I wished to give you pain? Was it that I wanted now so late revenge for that time when you saved my life and from a fearful death? Ah, no. Forgive me, my friend. It was because I wished to be gentle in the breaking to you. For I know you have loved that so sweet lady. But even yet, I do not expect you to believe. It is so hard to accept at once any abstract truth that we may doubt such to be possible when we have always believed the no of it. It is more hard still to accept so sad a concrete truth and of such a one as Miss Lucy. Tonight, I go to prove it. Dare you come with me? This staggered me. A man does not like to prove such a truth, and prove the very truth he most abhorred. He saw my hesitation. The logic is simple. No madman's logic this time. If it be not true, then proof will be relief. At worst, it will not harm. If it be true, ah, there is the dread. Yet very dread should help my cause, for in it is some need of belief. Come, I tell you.
tell you what I propose. First, that we go off now and see that child in the hospital. Dr. Vincent of the North Hospital, where the papers say the child is his friend of mine. And I think of yours, since you were in class at Amsterdam. He will let two scientists see his case, if he will not let two friends. We shall tell him nothing, but only that we wish to learn. And then... He took a key from his pocket and held it up. And then we spend the night, you and I, in the churchyard where Lucy lies. This is the key that locked the tomb. I had it from the coffin man to give to Arthur. My heart sank within me, for I felt that there was some fearful ordeal before us. I could do nothing, however, so I plucked up what heart I could and said that we had better hasten as the afternoon was passing. At North Hospital, we found the child awake. It had had a sleep, taken some food, and altogether was going on well. Dr. Vincent took the bandage from its throat and showed us the punctures. There was no mistaking the similarity to those which had been on Lucy's throat. It was smaller, and the edges looked fresher. That was all. To what do you attribute these wounds, Dr. Vincent? A bite of some animal, no doubt. Perhaps a rat. For my own part, I'm inclined to think it was one of the bats which are so numerous on the northern heights of London. Or from the zoological gardens, a young one may have got loose or been bred there from a vampire. Possibly. These things do occur, you know. Only ten days ago, a wolf got out and was, I believe, traced up in this direction. For a week after, the children were playing nothing but Red Riding Hood on the heath and in every alley in the place until this bluefer lady scare came along. Since when, it has been quite a gala time with them. Even this poor little mite, when he woke up today, asked the nurse if he might go away. When she asked him why he wanted to go, he said he wanted to play with the bluefer lady. I hope that when you are sending the child home, you will caution its parents to keep strict watch over it. These fancies to stray are most dangerous. If the child were to remain out another night, it would probably be fatal. But in any case, I suppose you will not let it away for some days. Our visit to the hospital took more time than we had reckoned on, and the sun had dipped before we came out. There is no hurry. It is more late than I thought. Come, let us seek somewhere that we may eat, and then we shall go on our way. We dined at Jack Straw's castle, along with a little crowd of bicyclists and others who were genially noisy. About ten o'clock we started from the inn. It was then very dark and the scattered lamps made darkness greater when we were once outside their individual radius. As we went further, we met fewer and fewer people, till at last we were somewhat surprised when we met even the patrol of horse police going their usual suburban round. At last, we reached the wall of the churchyard, which we climbed over. With some little difficulty, we found the Western Ray tomb. The professor took the key, opened the creaky door, and standing back, politely but quite unconsciously, motioned me to precede him. There was a delicious irony in the offer, 
in the courtliness of giving preference on such a ghastly occasion. My companion followed me quickly and cautiously drew the door to. Then he fumbled in his bag and taking out a matchbox and a piece of candle proceeded to make a light. The tomb in the daytime and when wreathed with fresh flowers had looked grim and gruesome enough. But now, some days afterwards, when the flowers hung lank and dead, their whites turning to rust and their greens to browns, when the spider and the beetle had resumed their accustomed dominance, when time discolored stone and dust encrusted mortar and rusty dank iron and tarnished brass and clouded silver plating gave back the feeble glimmer of a candle, the effect was more miserable and sordid than could have been imagined. It conveyed irresistibly the idea that life, animal life, was not the only thing which could pass away. Please, in my bag, you will find a turnscrew. What are you going to do? To open the coffin. You shall yet be convinced. Straight away, he began taking out the screws and finally lifted off the lid, showing the casing of lead beneath. The sight was almost too much for me. It seemed to be as much an affront to the dead as it would have been to have stripped off her clothing and her sleep whilst living. I took hold of his hand to stop him. Courage, my friend. You shall see. Again, fumbling in his bag, he took out a tiny fret saw, striking the turnscrew through the lead with a swift downward stab which made me wince. He made a small hole which was, however, big enough to admit the point of the saw. I had expected a rush of gas from the weak old corpse, but the professor never stopped for a moment. He saw it down a couple of feet along one side of the lead coffin, and then across and down the other side. Taking the edge of the loose flange, he bent it back towards the foot of the coffin and holding up the candle into the aperture, motioned me to look. I drew near and looked. to me and gave me a considerable shock. But Van Helsing was unmoved. He was now more sure than ever of his ground and so emboldened to proceed in his task. Are you satisfied now, friend John? I am satisfied that Lucy's body is not in that coffin, but that only proves one thing. And what is that, friend John? That it is not there. That is good logic, so far as it goes. But how do you... How can you account for it not being there? Perhaps a body snatcher. Some of the undertaker's people may have stolen it. Ah, well. We must have more proof. Come with me. He put on the coffin lid again, gathered up all his things and placed them in the bag, blew out the light and placed the candle also in the bag. We opened the door and went out. Behind us, he closed the door and locked it. He handed me the key. Will you keep it? You had better be assured. That key is nothing. There may be duplicates, and anyhow, it is not difficult to pick a lock of that kind. Yes, of course. He put the key in his pocket, 
Then he told me to watch at one side of the churchyard whilst he would watch at the other. I took up my place behind a yew tree, and I saw his dark figure move until the intervening headstones and trees hid it from my sight. It was a lonely vigil. Just after I had taken my place, I heard a distant clock strike twelve. And in time came one and two. Suddenly, as I turned around, I thought I saw something like a white streak moving between two dark yew trees at the side of the churchyard farthest from the tomb. At the same time, a dark mass moved from the professor's side of the ground and hurriedly went towards it. A little way off, beyond a line of scattered juniper trees which marked the pathway to the church, a white, dim figure flitted in the direction of the tomb. I heard the rustle of actual movement where I had first seen the white figure, and coming over found the professor holding in his arms a tiny child. When he saw me, he held it out to me. Are you satisfied now? No. Do you not see the child? Yes, it is a child, but who brought it here? And is it wounded? We shall see. And with one impulse, we took our way out of the churchyard, he carrying the sleeping child. When we had got some little distance away, we went into a clump of trees and struck a match and looked at the child's throat. It was without a scratch or scar of any kind. Was I right? We were just in time. We had now to decide what we were to do with the child, and so consulted about it. If we were to take it to a police station, we should have to give some account of our movements during the night. At least we should have to make some statement as to how we had come to find the child. So finally, we decided that we would take it to the heath, and when we heard a policeman coming, would leave it where he could not fail to find it. We would then seek our way home as quickly as we could. All fell out well. At the edge of Hampstead Heath, we heard a policeman's heavy tramp, and laying the child on the pathway, we waited and watched until he saw it as he flashed his lantern to and fro. We heard his exclamation of astonishment, and then we went silently away. By good chance, we got a cab near the Spaniards and drove to town. I cannot sleep, so I make this entry. But I must try to get a few hours sleep, as Van Helsing is to call for me at noon. He insists that I shall go with him on another expedition. suitable opportunity for our attempt. A funeral held at noon was all completed, and the last stragglers of the mourners had taken themselves lazily away. We knew then that we were safe till morning did we desire it, but the professor told me that we should not want more than an hour at most. Again, I felt that horrid sense of the reality of things, in which any effort of imagination seemed out of place. 
And I realized distinctly the perils of the law which we were incurring in our unhallowed work. Besides, I felt it was all so useless. Outrageous as it was to open a leaden coffin, to see if a woman dead nearly a week were really dead, it now seemed the height of folly to open the tomb again, when we knew from the evidence of our own eyesight that the coffin was empty. I shrugged my shoulders, however, and rested silent. For Van Helsing had a way of going on his own road, no matter who remonstrated. He took the key, opened the vault, and again courteously motioned me to proceed. The place was not so gruesome as last night. But oh, how unutterably mean-looking when the sunshine streamed in. Van Helsing walked, and I followed. He once again forced back the leaden flange. Then a shock of surprise and dismay shot through me. There lay Lucy, seemingly just as we had seen her the night before her funeral. She was, if possible, more radiantly beautiful than ever, and I could not believe that she was dead. The lips were red, nay, redder than before, and on the cheeks was a delicate bloom. Is this a chuckle? Are you convinced now? As he spoke, he put over his hand, and in a way that made me shudder, pulled back the dead lips and showed the white teeth. See, they are even sharper than before. With this and this. And he touched one of the canine teeth and that below it. The little children can be bitten. Are you of belief now, friend John? She may have been placed here since last night. Indeed. That is so. And by whom? I do not know. Someone has done it. And yet she has been dead one week. Most peoples in that time would not look so. He was looking intently at the face of the dead woman, raising the eyelids and looking at the eyes, and once more opening the lips and examining the teeth. Here. There is one thing which is different from all recorded. Here is some dual life that is not as the common. She was bitten by the vampire when she was in a trance, sleepwalking. Oh, you start. You do not know that, friend John, but you shall know it all later. And in trance... Could he best come to take more blood? In trance she died. And in trance she is undead too. So it is that she differ from all other. Usually, when the undead sleep, their face show what they are. But this one, so sweet that was when she not undead, she go back to the nothings of the common dead. There is no malign there, see, and so it make hard that I must kill her in her sleep. This turned my blood cold, but it began to dawn upon me that I was accepting Van Helsing's theories. But if she were really dead, what was there of terror in the idea of killing her? He looked up at me and evidently saw the change in my face. Ah. You believe now? Do not press me too hard all at once. I am willing to accept. 
How will you do this bloody work? I shall cut off her head and fill her mouth with garlic, and I shall drive a stake through her body. It made me shudder to think of so mutilating the body of the woman whom I had loved. And yet the feeling was not so strong as I had expected. I was, in fact, beginning to shudder at the presence of this being, this undead, as Van Helsing called it, and to loathe it. Is it possible that love is all subjective or all considerable time for Van Helsing to begin, but he stood as if wrapped in thought. Presently, he closed the catch of his bag with a snap. I have been thinking, and have made up my mind as to what is best. If I did simply follow my inclining, I would do now, at this moment, what is to be done. But there are other things to follow, and things that are thousand times more difficult, and that them we do not know. This is simple. She have yet no life taken, though that is of time. And to act now would be to take danger from her forever. But then we may have to want Arthur. And how shall we tell him of this? If you, who saw the wounds on Lucy's throat and saw the wounds so similar on the child's at the hospital, if you who saw the coffin empty last night and full today with a woman who have not changed only to be more rose and more beautiful in a whole week after she die. If you know of this and know of the white figure last night that brought the child to the churchyard and yet of your own senses you did not believe, how then can I expect Arthur who know none of these things? To believe. I see your meaning. No. I told him once. And since then, I learn much. Now, since I know it is all true, a hundred thousand times more do I know that he must pass through the bitter waters to reach the sweet. He, poor fellow, must have one hour that will make the very face of heaven grow black to him. Then we can act for good all round and send him peace. My mind is made up. Let us go. You return home for tonight to your asylum and see that all be well. As for me, I shall spend the night here in this churchyard. In my own way. Tomorrow night, you will come to me at the Barclay Hotel at ten of the clock. I shall send for Arthur to come too, and also that so fine young man of America that gave his blood. Later, we shall have work to do. I come with you so far as Piccadilly, and there dine. For I must be back here before the sun sets.
So he locked the tomb and came away and got over the wall of the churchyard, which was not much of a task, and drove back to Piccadilly. Here is the text of a note left by Van Helsing in his portmanteau, Barclay Hotel, directed to John Seward, M.D. Friend John, I write this in case anything should happen. I go alone to watch in that churchyard. It pleases me that the undead Miss Lucy shall not leave tonight. That so on the morrow night she may be more eager. Therefore, I shall fix some things she like not. Garlic and a crucifix. And so seal up the door of the tomb. She is young as undead and will heed. I shall be on hand all the night from sunset till after the sunrise. And if there be aught that may be learned, I shall learn it. For Miss Lucy, or from her, I have no fear. But that other, to whom is there that she is undead, he have now the power to seek her tomb and find shelter. He always have the strength in his hand of twenty men. He can summon his wolf and I know not what. So if it be that he come thither on this night, he shall find me, but none other shall, until it be too late. But it may be that he will not attempt the place. There is no reason why he should. His hunting ground is more full of game than the churchyard where the undead woman sleep and the one old man watch. Therefore, I write this in case. Take the papers that are with this, the diaries of Harker and the rest, and read them, and then find this great undead, and cut off his head, and burn his heart, or drive a stake through it, so that the world may rest from him. If it be so, farewell. Van Helsing.
Welcome back to Frightening Tales. I'm your host, Justin, and I'm joined by Tommy as usual. Of course, he's still a little freaked out by these vampire fangs here. Man, I just can't believe there's such a market that there's people out there that you could go see and they will make these for you. And man, ow, they're sharp. I would never expected that. This is much better than what you can get out of them Spirit Halloween store. I mean, I've had mine for well over 10 years now, and they held up pretty good. I, I like them. But let's move on from vampires, because we've talked about it for like last week and a little bit of today. This week was Ghostbusters Day, and so we're going to go ahead and move into the K-Ghoul Horror Film Club segment, where we talk about different horror movies and reviews and whatnot. And we're not going to review anything this week, because... Because like I said, this week had Ghostbusters Day in it, which is the 39th anniversary of the release of Ghostbusters. And for some reason, some people think that this should be a big hoopla day, that we should throw this big massive party, that there should be something from the studios, there should be some collectible or whatnot. It's just the observance of the release of the movie. We all love Ghostbusters, we all love it, but... For this year, they did give us a little tease, a little drop of the new Ghostbusters movie that's coming out in December. Whether or not it actually comes out in December makes me go, hmm, they, they were just filming it. So unless their editor is really good, I don't foresee a December release for Ghostbusters. But if they do, prove me wrong. Have fun with it. But however, the studios did drop us something very nice. They dropped the teaser poster. Now, it's the typical black background with the Ghostbusters logo on it, but the Ghostbusters logo is covered in ice. Yeah, makes you think that uh, Ghostbusters are going to have to battle Elsa and for this one. You really went there with Elsa. I sure did. I couldn't help on that one. I mean, what ghost do you know that freezes New York City? Yeah, you're, you're right about that. I don't think there's going to be any ghosts, but... We also know that Ghostbusters don't typically fight just ghosts. It's either like gods, possessors, all kinds of crazy stuff. So who could this possibly be? Now, I love when studios drop these kind of posters, these teasers, because the imagination just runs wild. Everybody starts coming out with these fan theories that are so far out there, and they're hooked, and they're convinced that their theory is the correct one, that when the movie comes out, and it has nothing to do with ice, or with whatever the logo looks like, they will hammer the movie and say it was horrible. Because it didn't meet their expectation, because their expectation was set on a story, or because they went digging through comic books and other books just to give you their theory. Of course, I never really pay attention to them. I like listening to them. I like seeing how deep they go because, man, when people really want to, they go and do some great research. And if I were to research it, which I've kind of done a little bit, I wouldn't just stick to, say, the current Ghostbuster literature. I don't have any of the Ghostbuster comics. I never went out and found those. Uh, if they're going to get anything, it's going to be, or if they're going to be inspired by anything, it's going to be from the real Ghostbuster series. There's 10 seasons. I have not watched every episode, so I cannot tell you if there was a ghost or spirit or some kind of demonic spirit that froze New York City. But to me, if they're going to pull references or if they're going to be inspired by something, it's going to come from the real Ghostbusters. Because what I gather from the Ghostbusters books, like the Tobin Spirit Guide, 
I don't see anything in there that would lead me to believe that there is a ghost or spirit that's going to freeze the city. Same way with the Ghostbusters employee manual, which that just tells you how to be a Ghostbuster. And it tells you equipment and all the other stuff. So I find that is a great source there as well. So if we're going to look into who could freeze things, well, you're going to have to dig deep. I mean, you're going to have to go check out the internet. You're going to have to check out like um, a book, The Vassin, which is deals with uh, Scandinavian folklore. Because if there's a frozen demon or spirit, it's going to come from Scandinavia. Or it's going to come from a place that gets very, very cold. So let's have fun. Who would they be? Who could they be fighting? Well, let's see. Uh, it could be the uh, King of Jotunheimer. Yeah, that could be it. Um, it. It's just crazy speculation. I know I teased that I'd give you a, a great theory as to who's going to be. But in the short time frame that this has been released, and just through my digging... I don't have anything for you. Um, it's great to see that we got some kind of news, a little bit push forward and uh, a little tease. Uh, we're in the month of June, so that gives them um, uh, a few months to really start getting some marketing together. But overall, I haven't seen too many theories yet. Uh, everybody's still formulating their thoughts. So we will revisit this subject in a week or two, I'm going to really let the theories go flying. I'm going to grab some YouTube videos and we, we're going to have some absolute fun with that. Well, this concludes the K-Ghoul Horror Film Club segment of the show. Let's get back to our movie, or I'm sorry, let's get back to our story, Dracula, here on Frightening Tales. Episode 10, The Tomb. Miss Lucy has joined the undead and is now a vampire. As our story continues, Dr. Van Helsing calls together Dr. Seward, Arthur Holmwood, and Quincy Morris. His plan is to enter the West Enray tomb and bring final rest and eternal peace to Lucy West Enray. Last night, at a little before 10 o'clock, Arthur and Quincy came into Van Helsing's room. He told us everything that he wanted us to do, but especially addressing himself to Arthur as if all our wills were centered in his. For oh, there is a grave duty to be done there. And you, Lord Godalming, Arthur, you were doubtless surprised at my letter. I was it rather upset me for a bit. There's been so much trouble around my house of late that I could do without any more. I've been curious, too, as to what you mean. Quincy and I talked it over, but the more we talked, the more puzzled we got. 
Till now, I can say for myself that I'm about up a tree as to any meaning about anything. I'm a bit confused myself. Quincy, Arthur, I want your permission to do what I think good this night. It is, I know, much to ask. And when you know what it is I propose to do, you will know, and only then, how much. That's frank, anyhow. I'll answer the professor. I don't quite see his drift, but I swear he's honest. And that's good enough for me. Dr. Van Helsing, if you can assure me that what you intend does not violate my honor as a gentleman or my faith as a Christian, I do give my consent. Though for the life of me, I cannot understand what you are driving at. I accept your limitation. And all I ask of you is that if you feel it necessary to condemn any act of mine, you will first consider it well and be satisfied that it does not violate your reservations. That is only fair. And now that the poor parlors are over, may I ask what it is we are to do? I want you to come with me and to come in secret to the churchyard at Kingstead. Buried? That is correct. And when there? To enter the tomb. And when in the tomb? To open the coffin. This is too much. I am willing to be patient in all things that are reasonable, but in this, this desecration of the grave. If I could spare you one pang, my poor friend, God knows I would. But this night, our feet must tread in thorny paths. Or later, and forever, the feet you love must walk in paths of flame. Take care, sir, take care. Would it not be well to hear what I have to say? And then you will at least know the limit of my purpose. Shall I go on? That's fair enough, Art. Let the man speak his piece. Miss Lucy is dead, is it not so? Yes. And there can be no wrong to her. But if she be not dead... What do you mean? Has there been any mistake? Has she been buried alive? I did not say she was alive. I go no further than to say that she might be undead. Undead? Not alive? What do you mean? Is this all a nightmare? What is it? There are mysteries which men can only guess at, which age by age they may solve only in part. Believe me, we are now on the verge of one. But I have not done. I must cut off the head of dead Miss Lucy. Dr. Van Helsing, you try me too far. What have I done to you that you should torture me so? What did that poor sweet girl do that you should want to cast such dishonor on her grave? My Lord Godalming, I too have a duty to do. A duty to others. A duty to you. A duty to the dead. And by God, I shall do it. All I ask you now is that you come with me, that you look and listen. And if when later I make the same request, you do not be more eager for its fulfillment even than I am, then 
I shall hold myself at your disposal to render an account to you when and where you will. He said this with a very grave, sweet pride, and Arthur was much affected by it. He took the old man's hand and said in a broken voice, Oh, it is hard to think of it. And I cannot understand, but at least I shall go with you and wait. It was just a quarter before twelve o'clock when we got into the churchyard over the low wall. The night was dark with occasional gleams of moonlight between the rents of the heavy clouds that scudded across the sky. We all kept somehow close together with Van Helsing slightly in front as he led the way. When we had come close to the tomb, I looked well at Arthur, for I feared that the proximity to a place laden with so sorrowful a memory would upset him, but he bore himself well. I took it that the very mystery of the proceeding was in some way a counteractant to his grief. The professor unlocked the door, and seeing a natural hesitation amongst us for various reasons, solved the difficulty by entering first himself. The rest of us followed, and he closed the door. He then lit a dark lantern and pointed to the coffin. Arthur stepped forward hesitatingly. Van Helsing said to me, You were with me yesterday. Was the body of Miss Lucy in that coffin? It was. So, Arthur. So, Quincy. Do you hear? Now you shall see. He took his screwdriver and again took off the lid of the coffin. Arthur looked on, very pale but silent. When the lid was removed, he stepped forward. He evidently did not know that there was a leaden coffin, or at any rate had not thought of it. When he saw the rent in the lid, the blood rushed to his face for an instant, but it quickly fell away again, so that he remained of a ghastly whiteness. He was still silent. Van Helsing forced back the leaden flange, and we all looked in and recoiled. The coffin was empty. For several minutes, no one spoke a word. The silence was broken by Quincy Morris. Professor, your word is... All I want. I wouldn't ask such a thing ordinarily, but this is a mystery that goes beyond any honor or dishonor. Is this your doing? I swear to you by all that I hold sacred that I have not removed nor touched her. What happened was this. Two nights ago, my friend Seward and I came here with good purpose, believe me. I opened that coffin, which was then sealed up, and we found it, as now, empty. We then waited and saw something white come through the trees. The next day, we came here in daytime, and she lay there. Did she not, friend John? Yes, it is true. That night, we were just in time. One more so small child was missing. 
we find it, thank God, unharmed amongst the graves. Yesterday, I came here before sundown, for at sundown, the undead can move. I waited here all the night till the sun rose, but I saw nothing. It was most probable that it was because I had laid over the clamps of those doors garlic, which the undead cannot bear, and other things which they shun. Last night, there was no exodus. So tonight, before the sundown, I took away my garlic and other things. And so it is, we find this coffin empty. But bear with me. So far, there is much that is strange. Wait you with me outside, unseen and unheard, and things much stranger are yet to be. So, now to the outside. Here, Van Helsing shut the dark slide of his lantern. Then he opened the door and we filed out. Each in his own way was solemn and overcome. Arthur was silent and was, I could see, striving to grasp the purpose and the inner meaning of the mystery. I was myself tolerably patient and half inclined again to throw aside doubt and to accept Van Helsing's conclusions. Quincy Morris was phlegmatic in the way of a man who accepts all things and accepts them in a spirit of cool bravery. As to Van Helsing, he was employed in a definite way. First, he took from his bag a mass of what looked like thin, wafer-like biscuit, which was carefully rolled up in a white napkin. Next, he took out a double handful of some whitish stuff, like dough or putty. He crumbled the wafer up fine and worked it into the mass between his hands. This he then took, and rolling it into thin strips, began to lay them into the crevices between the door and its setting in the tomb. I was somewhat puzzled at this, and being close, asked him what it was that he was doing. Arthur and Quincy drew near also, as they too were curious. He answered, I am closing the tomb, so that the undead may not enter. And is that stuff you have put there going to do it? It will. It is the sacred host. I brought it from Amsterdam. I have an indulgence. It was a long spell of silence. A big, aching void. And then, from the Professor Akin, whispered, hush. He pointed, and far down the avenue of yews, we saw a white figure advance. A dim, white figure which held something dark at its breast. The figure stopped, and at the moment, a ray of moonlight fell between the masses of driving clouds and showed in startling prominence a dark-haired woman dressed in the cerements of the grave. We could not see the face, for it was bent down over what we saw to be a fair-haired child. There was a pause and a sharp little cry, such as a child gives in sleep or a dog as it lies before the fire and dreams. We started forward, but the professor 
Professor's warning hand kept us back. And then, as we looked, the white figure moved forwards again. It was now near enough for us to see clearly, and the moonlight still held. My own heart grew cold as ice, and I could hear the gasp of Arthur as we recognized the features of Lucy Westinray. Lucy Westinray. But yet, how changed. The sweetness was turned to adamantine, heartless cruelty, and the purity to voluptuous wantonness. The Helsing stepped out, and obedient to his gesture, we all advanced too. The four of us ranged in line before the door of the tomb. Then Helsing raised his lantern and drew the slide. And by the concentrated light that fell on Lucy's face, we could see that the lips were crimson with fresh blood. And that the stream had trickled over her chin and stained the purity of her long death row. At that moment, the remnant of my love passed into hate and loathing. Had she then to be killed, I could have done it with savage delight. As she looked, her eyes blazed with unholy light, and the face became wreathed with a voluptuous smile. There was a cold-bloodedness in the act which Rugger groaned from Arthur. When she advanced to him with outstretched arms and a wanton smile, he fell back and hid his face in his hands. She still advanced, however, with a languorous, voluptuous grace. Come to me, Arthur. Leave those others and come to me. My arms are hungry for you. Come, and we can rest together. Arthur seemed under a spell. Moving his hands from his face, he opened wide his arms. She was leaping for them when Van Helsing sprang forward and held between them his little golden crucifix. She recoiled from it, and with a suddenly distorted face, full of rage, dashed past him as if to enter the tomb. When, within a foot or two of the door, however, she stopped as if arrested by some irresistible force. Then she turned to Van Helsing, and her face was shown in the clear burst of moonlight. This is your doing. I act in the name of God. Your God is not the master. Your master cannot help you now. Nosferatu. Never did I see such baffled malice on a face. And never, I trust, shall such ever be seen again by mortal eyes. The beautiful color became livid. The eyes seemed to throw out sparks of hell fire. The brows were wrinkled as though the folds of the flesh were coils of Medusa's snakes. And the lovely, blood-stained mouth proved to an open square. And her canine teeth, dripping with the child's blood, glistened in the moonlight. And so for full half a minute, which seemed like an eternity, she remained between the lifted crucifix and the sacred closing of her means of entry. Van Helsing broke the silence by asking Arthur, Answer me, oh my friend, 
am I to proceed in my work? Do as you will, friend. Do as you will. There can be no horror like this ever anymore. We could hear the click of the closing lantern as Van Helsing held it down. Coming close to the tomb, he began to remove from the chinks some of the sacred emblem which he had placed there. We all looked on in horrified amazement as we saw, when he stood back, the woman with a corporeal body as real at that moment as our own, pass in through the interstice where scarce a knife blade could have gone. We all felt a glad sense of relief when we saw the professor calmly restoring the strings of putty to the edges of the door. When this was done, he lifted the child and said, Come now, my friends. We can do no more till tomorrow. There is a funeral at noon, so here we shall all come before long after that. The friends of the dead will all be gone by two, and when the sexton lock the gate, we shall remain. Then there is more to do, but not like this of tonight. As for this little one, he is not much harm, and by tomorrow night he shall be well. We shall leave him where the police will find him, as on the other night. And then to home. Arthur and Quincy came home with me, and we tried to cheer each other on the way. We had left the child in safety and were tired, so we all slept with more or less the reality of sleep. At little before twelve o'clock, we three, Arthur, Quincy, Morris, and myself, called for the professor. We got to the churchyard by half-past one and strolled about, keeping out of official observation, so that when the gravediggers had completed their task and the sexton, under the belief that everyone had gone, had locked the gate, we had the place all to ourselves. Instead of his little black bag, Van Helsing had with him a long leather one, Something like a cricketing bag. It was manifestly of fair weight. When we were alone and had heard the last of the footsteps die out up the road, we silently and as if by ordered intention followed the professor to the tomb. He unlocked the door and we entered, closing it behind us. Then he took from his bag the lantern, which he lit, and also two wax candles, which when lighted, stuck by melting their own ends on other coffins so that they might give light sufficient to work by. When he again lifted the lid off Lucy's coffin, we all looked, Arthur trembling like an aspen, and saw that the body lay there in all its death beauty. Is this really Lucy's body, or only a demon in her shape? It is her body. And yet, not it. But wait a while, and you shall see her as she was, and is. Ben Helsing, with his usual methodicalness, began taking the various contents from his bag and placing them ready for use. First, he took out a soldering iron and some plumbing solder, and then a small oil lamp which gave out when lit in a corner of the tomb gas which burned at a fierce heat with a blue flame. Then his operating knives, which he placed a hand. And last, a round wooden stake. 
some two and a half or three inches thick and about three feet long. One end of it was hardened by charring in the fire and was sharpened to a fine point. The career of this so unhappy dear lady is but just begun. Those children whose blood she suck are not as yet so much the worse. But if she live on undead, more and more they lose their blood. And by her power over them, they come to her. And so she draw their blood with that so wicked mouth. But if she die in truth, then all cease. The tiny wounds of the throat disappear, and they go back to their plays unknowing ever of what has been. But of the most blessed of all, when this now undead be made to rest as true dead, then the soul of the poor lady whom we love shall again be free. Instead of working wickedness by night and growing more debased in the assimilating of it by day, she shall take her place with the other angels so that, my friend, it will be a blessed hand for her that shall strike the blow that sets her free. To this I am willing, but is there none amongst us who has a better right? Go on. Tell me what I am to do. Take this stake in your left hand, ready to place the point over the heart, and the hammer in your right. Then, when we begin our prayer, strike in God's name, that so all may be well with the dead that we love, and that the undead pass away. Arthur took the stake and the hammer. And when once his mind was set on action, his hands never trembled nor even quivered. Van Helsing opened his missal and began to read, and Quincy and I followed as well as we could. Arthur placed the point over the heart. As I looked, I could see its dent in the white flesh. Arthur nos Regnum via voluntas tuo. Libera nos ad malo et lay no longer the foul thing that we had so dreaded and grown to hate that the work of her destruction was yielded as a privilege to the one best entitled to it. But Lucy, as we had seen her in her life, with a face of unequaled sweetness and purity, true that there were, as we had seen them in life, the traces of care and pain and waste, 
but these were all dear to us. One and all, we felt that the holy calm that lay like sunshine over the wasted face and form was only an earthly token and symbol of the calm that was to reign forever. Van Helsing came and laid his hand on Arthur's shoulder and said to him, And now, my child, you may kiss her. Kiss her dead lips, if you will, as she would have you to, if for her to choose. For she is not a grinning devil now, not any more a foul thing for all eternity. No longer she is the devil's undead. She is God's true dead, whose soul is with him. Arthur bent and kissed her, and then we sent him and Quincy out of the tomb. The professor and I sawed the top off the stake, leaving the point of it in the body. Then we cut off the head and filled the mouth with garlic. We soldered up the leaden coffin, screwed on the coffin lid, and gathering up our belongings came away. When the professor locked the door, he gave the key to Arthur. Now, my friends, one step of our work is done, one the most harrowing to ourselves. But there remains a greater task, to find out the author of all this our sorrow and to stamp him out. Two nights hence, you shall meet with me and dine together at seven of the clock with friend John. I shall entreat two others, and then I shall have our plans to unfold. Tonight, I leave for Amsterdam, but shall return tomorrow night. And then begins our great quest. There is a terrible task before us, and we must not draw back. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. I'm Justin, the ghoul man, Redman, and I'm joined by Tommy. And we've been talking all things vampires and ghostbusters this evening. So now we're going to move on into what I call the Burgers Investigation Destination. That's right. The Bigfoot, UFOs, Rougarou, Ghost, Extraterrestrial Research Society sends out a memo every week telling us the best place for us investigators to go check out. And Tommy and I have uh, we got a few just places that we've been to, but not a whole lot. But this particular destination came from the TV show Portals, uh, Portals to Hell. Starring Jack Osborne, the son of Ozzy Osborne, now turned paranormal investigator, and Katrina Weidman. I don't know too much about Katrina. I just started watching the show. But the first episode, they go to Juneau, Alaska, where the Alaskan Hotel is at. Now, this could be of great use to the Burgers Manual because this place not only has ghosts, but demonic spirits and an idiot that runs the, that manages the bar. Sorry there, Josh, but you're, uh, you accidentally conjuring spirits? Yeah. That nobody, just say no to conjuring. 
Yeah, even I know not to use no Ouija board or draw something and conjure spirit. But this show seems to be kind of typical of the other shows. The investigators go in and then you got the manager telling them the backstory, tell them where all the ghosts are at and what rooms are that. And then leaves out the, the facts that, oh, I dated a girl whose mom dabbled in black magic and I unwillingly and unwittingly participated in such thing. And then I conjured a spirit. You know, this is information you need to tell the investigators up front. It's like going to the ER and forgetting to tell them what medicines you take. If you don't tell me that you summoned something or you conjured something and he just hangs out in this back corner of the boiler room or where the hot tubs are at, right next to the hot tub where Charlie died back in 1998, what do you, what, what do you think I'm going to do? Or what are you, I'm going to leave me confused first off as they left Jack and Katrina there. They were confused until Mr. Josh ponied up the information. Now, the Alaskan is supposed to have apparitions where people wake up feeling that there's a ghost in the room or that they see a ghost. And then, of course, there's the room 315 where some guy or some guy lost his mind, started screaming, let me out, let me out. And then ended up jumping through a window. Sounds like I've heard about this movie before, like Room 319 or something like that. I may have to go back and check that out. And then you got the other room where they put the female. And I think her room was like 213 or something like that, 219. Where supposedly, back in the 30s, a woman was was uh, cheating on her husband. And he found out. And it was a murder-suicide. Well, it turns out to be a misunderstanding. That uh, when when Katrina brought out her little boombox voice box thing. Yeah, that was a pretty cool contraption. We're going to have to get one of those things. Where you can ask a question and you hear all these weird noises. And then words just come through like rape. I mean, I'm not excited about the word rape. But then they say like up, down, yes. So we got to get ourselves one of those boxes. We'll ask burgers for that. See if they've got one. And then the investigation. Now, compared to the other ghost shows that I watch, this show is better. The investigation part's still kind of hokey. As soon as Jack walks into the building, one of his devices starts going off. And it goes off the entire night. As much a fact, I kind of said, you might want to replace that. I think something might be wrong with it. But when Jack was doing his investigation on his floor, this ghost or this spirit just kept walking around and creaking floorboards and all the other stuff. Now, like I was saying, this show is better than the other ghost shows. You, you relate more to Jack and Katrina. They, they seem to do be a better host than everything. And as I was telling my daughter that you know, a lot of stuff that they're going to see here is just pure theatricality. And surprisingly they kept that part low i I think the the most dramatic part was when uh when they were down there in the boiler room and uh they started talking about charlie and the device came started going off but when jack would turn the device away it would stop and then when he turned the device back towards him it would go off and you got josh well that's because charlie's right behind you there say what 
I know. You tell me the ghost is standing right behind me, and I'm supposedly staring at the spot where two demonic spirits are at? You think I'm staying down there? Heck no. This will be when I call the Ghostbusters to get my proton pack and start trapping these things, because there's no way I'm just going to stand there all cool and calm. So in the end, did they discover anything in the Alaskan? Well, like every ghost show, like there's something there, but I feel there's the bad word in the paranormal investigation community. I feel that there was a demon or that she was misunderstood. The ghost Alice was misunderstood that she was not, it was not a murder suicide. It was a rape that killed her. Yeah. You need to spend more than just two nights in the hotel. To me, if you're going to spend this spend this time, you're in Juneau, Alaska, where it's pretty much cut off from the rest of the world. You can only get there by plane or by boat. You might as well go ahead and spend seven days in this joint and get a real good investigation done. Or at least, you know, the first night they were there, they were kept waking up, supposedly. They slept with the lights on. So that's another thing that I got to pick on about, about this episode. So they get to the hotel. They know the hotel is haunted. I think the owner should not have told them that their rooms were the two most haunted rooms in the hotel. That anytime anybody ever stays there, they don't want to pay for their night. She should have kept that information to herself. So that way you would have a control group. You would see if something actually happened or if that by through the power of suggestion, they couldn't sleep. They were having bad dreams and the devices kept going off. To me, if she wouldn't have told him, I would never, you know, that would that first night, no devices out whatsoever. No, don't turn them on. Get a good night's sleep in there. See what happens. And then from there, start measuring. So that way you got your base control group and that's it. And then you can start investigating. Like I said, you need more than two nights too. Three nights, four nights, a week. Because uh, one boy that jumped out of the window, he was staying up there for like, several days before he went crazy. So you got really experienced that overall. I'd give portal portals to hell a great uh, chance for me to keep watching because I didn't feel like uh, Jack and Katrina were trying to sell me on a demon spirit here or they, they never, they didn't go through all the, Oh my, it's suddenly really, really cold here a lot. Well, that concludes this burgers investigation destination. If you're looking for a good spot to go, Go visit the Alaskan Hotel in Juneau, Alaska, and see what you can find. <laughs> Let's get back to our story, Dracula, here on Frightening Tales. Episode 11, Van Helsing's Plan. Dr. Van Helsing now prepares to hunt the vampire. He has combined the journals, letters, and diaries of Jonathan Harker, Mina Harker, Dr. Seward, and Lucy Westenray. This information will now be used in the effort to destroy the Count. Van Helsing has called everyone together including Arthur Holmwood and Quincy Morris, to the asylum to make clear his plan. 
Dr. Seward's Diary, 30 September, 1897. I returned to the asylum at five o'clock and found that Homewood and Morris had not only arrived, but had already studied the transcript of the various diaries and letters which Harker and his wonderful wife had made and arranged. Van Helsing had sent Harker to trace the movements of the Count's 50 boxes of unholy earth, and he had not yet returned from his visit to the carrier's men. Those on hand settled into a late tea, and when we had finished, Mrs. Harker said, Dr. Seward, may I ask a favor? I want to see your patient, Mr. Renfield. Do let me see him. What you have said of him in your diary interests me so much. Mrs. Harker, Mina, beyond these rooms, my world is not a welcome sight. But then Renfield is somehow involved. We could go to him now before Dr. Van Helsing and Jonathan return. With this, we made our way out of the sitting room and descended into the holding area of the asylum and to Renfield's cell. Mr. Renfield? Mr. Renfield! What? A lady would like to see you. Why? She is going through the house and wants to see everyone in it. Oh, very well. Let her come in by all means. But just wait a minute till I tidy up the place. His method of tidying was peculiar. He simply swallowed all the flies and spiders in the boxes before I could stop him. It was quite evident that he feared or was jealous of some interference. When he had got through his disgusting task, he said cheerfully, Let the lady come in. Good evening, Mr. Renfield. You know my name, then. Oh, yes. Dr. Seward has told me of you. Mm-hmm. you. You're not the girl Lucy, are you? You can't be, you know, for she's dead. Oh, no. I am Mrs. Harker. Then what are you doing here? My husband and I are staying on a visit with Dr. Seward. A moment, please, Mr. Renfield. How did you know about Lucy? What an asinine question. I don't see that at all, Mr. Renfield. You will, of course, understand, Mrs. Harker, that when a man is so loved and honored as our host is, everything regarding him is of interest in our little community. Since I myself have been an inmate of a lunatic asylum, I cannot but notice that the sophistic tendencies of some of its inmates lean towards the errors of non-cauche in ignoratio elenchi. I positively opened my eyes at this new development. Here was my own pet lunatic, the most pronounced of his type that I had ever met with, talking elemental philosophy and with the manner of a polished gentleman. We continued to talk for some time, and seeing that he was seemingly quite reasonable, she ventured, looking at me questioningly as she began, to lead him to his favorite topic, eternal life. Why, I myself am an instance of a man who had a strange belief. 
Indeed, it was no wonder that my friends were alarmed and insisted on my being put under control. I used to fancy that life was a positive and perpetual entity, and that by consuming a multitude of live things, no matter how low in the scale of creation, one might indefinitely prolong life, relying, of course, upon the scriptural phrase, for the blood is the life. I was so amazed at Rinfield's mental clarity that I barely knew what to either think or say. It was hard to imagine that I had seen him eat up his spiders and flies not five minutes before. Doctor? Yes, yes, of course. I say, Mrs. Harker, by my watch, it is time to go to the station to meet Van Helsing. I'm afraid we must go. Very well. Goodbye, Mr. Renfield. I hope I may see you often under auspices pleasanter to yourself. Goodbye, my dear. I pray God I may never see your sweet face again. May he bless and keep you. Ah, friend John, how goes all? Well, so, I have been busy. All affairs are settled with me, and I have much to tell. Madame Mina is with you? Yes, she is here. And her so fine husband? And Arthur and my friend Quincy, they are with you too? Yes, yes, everyone is at hand. Good, good. Come, here is the carriage. I have information for you. What have you discovered? You recall Harker's estate purchase for the Count. One main, two satellite, yes? Correct. The main house... Is where? It is... Carfax. Carfax? The place beside the asylum? Oh, that we had known it before. For then, we might have reached him in time to save poor Lucy. Ah. Poor Miss Lucy. But no, we shall not think of that. We must go on our way to the end. Then he fell into a silence that lasted till we entered my own gateway. Before we went to prepare for dinner, he said to Mrs. Harker, I trust, Madam Mina, that you have kept in exact order all things that have been up to this moment? Not up to this moment, Professor, but up to this morning. But why not up to now? We have seen hitherto how good light all the little things have made. We have told our secrets, and yet no one who has told is the worse for it. I precede you, Dr. Van Helsing. Will you read this and tell me if it must go in? It is my record of today. I, too, have seen the need of putting down at present everything, however trivial. But there is little in this except what is personal. Must it go in? It need not go in if you do not wish it. But I pray that it may. Very well. It is done. And so now, up to this very hour, all the records we have are complete and in order. The professor took away one copy to study after dinner and before our meeting, which is fixed for nine o'clock. The rest of us have already read everything. 
so that when we meet in the study we shall all be informed as to the facts and can arrange our plan of battle with this terrible and mysterious enemy. Mina Harker's Journal When we met in Dr. Seward's study two hours after dinner, we unconsciously formed a sort of board or committee. Professor Van Helsing took the head of the table, and he bade me sit next to him on his right to keep the journal. Jonathan sat next to me. Opposite us were Arthur Homewood, Dr. Seward, and Quincy Morris. I may, I suppose, take it that we are all acquainted with the facts that are in these papers. This being so, I think good that I tell you something of the kind of enemy with which we have to deal. I shall then make known to you something of the history of this man, this Dracula. The Nosferatu do not die like the bee when he sting wants. He is only stronger, and being stronger, have yet more power to work evil. This vampire which is amongst us is of himself so strong in person as twenty men. He is of cunning more than mortal, for his cunning be the growth of ages. He have still the aids of necromancy, all the dead that he can come nigh to are for him at command. He can, within limitations, here at will, when and where, and in many of the forms that are there for him, he can, within his range, direct the elements, the storm, the fog, the thunder. He can command all the meaner things, the rat, and the owl, and the bat, and the wolf. He can grow and become small. He can at times vanish and come unknown. How then are we to begin our work? How shall we find him? And having found him, how can we destroy him? My friends, this is much. It is a terrible task that we undertake, and there may be consequence to make the brave shudder. For if we fail in this our fight, he must surely win. And then, where can we? Life is nothing, I heed him not. But to fail here is not mere life or death. It is that we become as him. That we henceforth become foul things of the night like him. Without heart or conscience, preying on the bodies and the souls of our fellows. But we are face to face with duty, and in such case must we shrink? For me, I say no. But then, I am old and life lie far behind. You others are young, 
Some have seen sorrow, but there are fair days yet in store. What say you all? Mr. Harker? I stand with you until the destruction of this monster is complete. Madam Mina? I am here to the end. Arthur? Professor, we could not begin soon enough. Mr. Morris, how is your taste for adventure? Count me in. And I agree with Arthur. The sooner we get after this man, or whatever it is, the sooner we can put him down for good. And you, friend John? I did not believe. I did not want to believe. But now I see that it is true. Dracula must be destroyed. Yet I do not see how we are to proceed. We are not without strength. We have on our side power of combination, a power denied to the vampire kind. We have sources of science. We are free to act and think. And the hours of the day and night are ours equally. These things are much. The Nosferatu does flourish when he can be fattened on the blood of the living. But he cannot flourish without this diet. He eat not as others. He throws no shadow. He make in the mirror no reflect. He can come in mist which he create. But from what we know, the distance he can make this mist is limited, and it can only be round himself. He come on moonlit rays as elemental dust. He can, when once he find his way, come out from anything, or into anything. Ah, but hear me through. He can do all these things, yet he is not free. He is even more prisoner than the slave of the galley, than the madman in his cell. He may not enter anywhere at the first, unless there be someone of the household who bid him to come. His power ceases at the coming of the day. If he be not at the place to where he is bound, he can only change himself at noon, or at exact sunrise or sunset. These things are we told, and in this record of ours we have proof by inference. Thus, whereas he can do as he will within his limit, when he have his earth home, his coffin home, his hell home, a place unhallowed, still, at other time, he can only change come. It is said, too, that he can only cross running water at the slack or the flood of the tide. Then there are things which so affect him that he has no power, as the garlic that we know of, and as for things sacred, as my crucifix. In their presence he take his place far off and silent with respect. 
branch of wild rose on his coffin, keep him that he move not from it. A sacred bullet fired into the coffin, kill him so that he be true dead. And as for the stake through him, we know already of its peace. For the cut off head that giveth rest, we have seen it with our eyes. Thus, when we find the habitation of this man that was, we can confine him to his coffin and destroy him if we obey what do we know. Whilst Van Helsing was talking, Quincy was looking steadily at the window, and now he got up quietly and went out of the room. Now we must settle what we are to do. We have here much data, and we must proceed to lay out our campaign. We know from the inquiry of Jonathan that from the castle to Whitby came 50 boxes of earth, all of which were delivered at Carfax. We also know that at least some of these boxes have been removed. Our first step should be to ascertain whether all the rest remain in the house beyond that wall where we look today, or whether any more have been removed. What in the name of... It's Quincy. What on earth is he doing out there? Sorry. I didn't mean to alarm you folks. It was an idiotic thing of me to do, I suppose, but the fact is that while the professor was talking there, came a big bat, and it sat on the windowsill. I got a real horror of the damn brutes from recent events, and I just can't stand them. And I went out to have a shot. Did you hit it? I don't know. I suppose not. It flew away into the woods yonder. Very well. Come and sit. Sorry about the window, Doc. Yes, well, perhaps you would holster that weapon. Gentlemen, please. We must trace each of these boxes, and we must either capture or kill this monster in his lair. Or we must, so to speak, sterilize the earth so that no more he can seek safety in it. Thus, in the end, we may find him in his form of man between the hours of noon and sunset, and so engage with him when he is at his most weak. And where do we begin this search? There. At Carfax. As there is no time to lose, I vote we have a look at this house right now. Time is everything with him. Swift action on our part may save another victim. Just as we were about to leave the house, an urgent message was brought to me from Renfield. He wanted to know if I would see him at once, as he had something of the utmost importance to say to me. And Helsing and the rest insisted upon coming along to Renfield's cell. We found him in a state of considerable excitement. Oh, hello, gentlemen. Dr. Van Helsing, Dr. Seward, I feel that I am completely recovered and I should like to be released from the asylum and sent home. At once, if you don't mind. If I don't mind. Your friends will perhaps not mind sitting in judgment of my sanity. By the way, 
You have not introduced me. I was so much astonished that the oddness of introducing a madman in an asylum did not strike me at the moment. And besides, there was a certain dignity in the man's manner, so much of the habit of equality, that I at once made introductions. Uh, you, of course, know Professor Van Helsing. Yes, yes. Lord Godalming, Mr. Quincy Morris of Texas. Mr. Renfield. Lord Godalming. I had the honor of seconding your father at the Wyndham. I grieve to know, by your holding the title, that he is no more. He was a man loved and honored by all who knew him, and in his youth was, I have heard, the inventor of a burnt rum punch much patronized on Derby Night. I think we were all staggered. For my own part, I was under the conviction, despite my knowledge of the man's history, that his reason had been completely restored. But I did not speak my mind. Mr. Renfield, you seem well. Why, thank you, Professor. May I go? Perhaps we can speak of it in the morning, eh? But I fear, Dr. Van Helsing, that you gentlemen hardly apprehend my wish. I desire to go at once, here, now, this very hour, this very moment, if I may. I am sure it is only necessary to put before so admirable a practitioner as Dr. Seward so simple, yet so momentous a wish to ensure its fulfillment. Is it possible that I have erred in my supposition? You have. Then, I suppose... I must only shift my ground of request. Let me ask for this concession, boon, privilege, what you will. I am content to implore in such a case, not on personal grounds, but for the sake of others. I am not at liberty to give you the whole of my reasons, but you may, I assure you, take it from me that they are good ones, sound, and unselfish, and spring from the highest sense of duty. Mr. Renfield, I believe I follow your mind, but can you not tell frankly your real reason for wishing to be free tonight? I will undertake that if you will satisfy me, a man without prejudice and with the habit of keeping an open mind, Dr. Seward will give you, at his own risk and on his own responsibility, the privilege you seek. I cannot say it. Come, sir. If you will not help us in our effort to choose the wisest course, how can we perform the duty which you yourself put upon us? Be wise and help us, and if we can, we shall aid you to achieve your wish. Your argument is complete, and if I were free to speak, I should not hesitate a moment. But I am not my own master in the matter. I can only ask you to trust me. If I am refused, the responsibility does not rest with me. 
I thought it was now time to end the scene, so I went towards the door, beckoning the others to follow. But then a new change came over the patient. He moved towards me so quickly that for the moment I feared that he was about to make another homicidal attack. My fears, however, were groundless. Let me entreat you, Dr. Seward. Oh, let me implore you to let me out of this house at once. Send me away how you will and where you will. Send keepers with me with whips and chains. Let them take me in a straight waistcoat, manacled and leg-ironed. But let me go out of this place. You don't know what you do by keeping me here. I am speaking from the depths of my heart, of my very soul. By all you hold sacred, by all you hold dear, take me out of this and save my soul from guilt. Can't you hear me, man? Can't you understand? Will you never learn? Don't you know that I am sane and earnest now? That I am no lunatic in a mad fit? but a sane man fighting for his soul. Renfield, tell me that which I must know. I cannot. Then you are doomed. You do not know his power. Come, no more of this. We have had quite enough already. Get to your bed and try to behave more discreetly. <sighs> he suddenly stopped and looked at me intently for several moments. Then, without a word, he rose and moving over sat down on the side of the bed. The collapse had come, as on the former occasion, just as I had expected. When I was leaving the room, he said to me in a quiet, well-bred voice, You will, I trust, Dr. Seward. Do me the justice to bear in mind that I did what I could to convince you tonight. Episode 12, The Vampire's Lair. Dr. Van Helsing has gathered a small band of individuals dedicated to finding and destroying Count Dracula. They are Mina Harker, Jonathan Harker, Dr. John Seward, Sir Arthur Holmwood, and Mr. Quincy Morris. He has shared with them the strengths and weaknesses of the Nosferatu, the undead. The moment has come to begin the hunt. Our story continues at the doors of Carfax, the vampire's lair. The five of us, Van Helsing, Dr. Seward, Homewood, Quincy Morris, and myself, made our way over the stone wall. Storm clouds were threatening as we moved silently over the grounds. When we reached the great doors of Carfax, Van Helsing turned and spoke. My friends, we are going into a terrible danger, and we need arms of many kinds. Our enemy is not merely spiritual. Remember 
that he has the strength of twenty men, and we must guard ourselves from his touch. For each of you, I have these. Here, the crucifix. Keep it near your heart. And put these flowers of garlic around your neck. Or the more common enemy, the revolver and the knife. And here, these so small electric lamps which you can fasten to your breast. And for all, and above all at the last, this, a small portion of the sacred wafer. Friend John, where are the skeleton keys? I have them here. Then use them. Dr. Seward tried one or two skeleton keys, his mechanical dexterity as a surgeon standing him in good stead. Presently, he got one to suit, and after a little play back and forth, the bolt yielded, and with a rusty clang, shot back. We pressed on the door. The rusty hinges creaked, and it slowly opened. The professor was the first to move forward, and stepped into the open door. We all followed, and Quincy Morris spoke. I hate rats. I bet this place is filthy with rats. Don't worry about that, old man. I have a remedy should the need arise. Arthur, Quincy, be still. This is not a schoolboy's outing. We are in the devil's own castle. Indeed we were. The whole place was thick with dust. The floor was seemingly inches deep, except where there were recent footsteps, in which, on holding down my lamp, I could see marks of hobnails where the dust was caked. In the corners were masses of spider's webs, whereon the dust had gathered till they looked like old tattered rags as the weight had torn them partly down. After a moment, Van Helsing turned to me and said, You know this place, Jonathan. Which is the way to the chapel? I, I believe there. Through that arched door. Yes. This is the spot. With a little trouble, we forced back the heavy oaken door. The place was small and close, and the long disuse had made the air stagnant and foul. There was an earthy smell as of some dry miasma which came through the fouler air. The odor itself seemed to carry all the ills of mortality and with the pungent, acrid smell of blood. Breath exhaled by that monster seemed to have clung to the place and intensified its loathsomeness. The first thing is to see how many of the boxes are left. We must then examine every hole and corner and cranny and see if we cannot get some clue as to what has become of the rest. I count 29, Professor. But weren't there 50 boxes delivered? Yes. 50 in all. Are the others hidden? No. Not here. He has moved them to other locations. In this way, he may move with greater freedom. And, as all villains, he prefers to keep numerous holes in which to crawl, should he be in any way threatened. How will we find the other boxes? They are not spirits, 
They are large and heavy, and by necessity need be transported by strong men. He has not the Slovaks here. These movements may be traced. A bit of detective work, I think, for young Harker. There. Do you see it? Where? What? I, I thought I saw a face. There, in the shadows. A trick of light, perhaps. I had followed Arthur's glance, and for an instant my heart stood still. Somewhere, looking out from the shadow, I seemed to see the highlights of the Count's evil face. The edge of the nose, the red eyes, the red lips. But it was only for a moment. Oh, Lord, look at this, will you? We all followed Quincy's movements with our eyes and we saw a whole mass of phosphorescence which twinkled like stars. We all instinctively drew back. The whole place was becoming alive with rats. For a moment or two, we stood appalled, all save Arthur, who rushed over and swung open the great iron-bound oaken door. Then, taking a little silver whistle from his pocket, he blew a low, shrill call. It was answered by the yelping of dogs, and after about a minute, three terriers came dashing around the corner of the house. But even in that minute, the number of rats had vastly increased. They seemed to swarm all over the place, all at once, till the lamplight shining on their moving dark bodies and glittering baleful eyes made the place look like a bank of earth set with fireflies. The dogs dashed on, but at the threshold, suddenly stopped. This time, there were thousands of rats at our feet. Arthur lifted up one of the dogs and, carrying him in, placed him on the floor. The instant his feet touched the ground, he seemed to recover his courage and rushed at his natural enemies. They fled before him so fast that before he had shaken the life out of a score, the other dogs had but small prey. The whole mass of vermin had vanished. And with their going, it seemed as if some evil presence had departed, and we all seemed to find our spirits rise. Are we to look for the Count? He won't be here. Not at this hour. This is when he feeds. This house is empty, I assure you. Mr. Harker is correct. Our night has been eminently successful. No harm has come to us, and yet we have ascertained how many boxes are missing. And now, let us go home. The dawn is close at hand, and we have reason to be content with our first night's work. The day after our visit to Carfax, I was in my study attending the managerial drudgeries of directing a medical facility when Van Helsing appeared at the door. Do I interrupt? Not at all. Come in. My work is finished. I am free to take you to Renfield, as you wished. It is needless. I have seen him. And? I fear that he does not appraise me at much. Our interview was short. When I entered his room, he was sitting on a stool in the center with his elbows on his knees. Daisy, Daisy. Hum-de-hum-de-hum, 
I'm half crazy. Dum dum dum. It won't be a stylish marriage. I can't afford. So a... you sing the ditty, yes. But you'll look sweet. Dum dum dum. Mr. Renfield. Bicycle built for two. Do you not know me? I know you well enough. You are the old fool Van Helsing. I wish you would take yourself and your idiotic brain theory somewhere else. Damn all thick-headed Dutchmen. Renfield called you a thick-headed Dutchman. <laughs> idiotic brain theories. Have you ever heard of such foolishness? Well, perhaps the man is showing some lucidity. You would do well to not tease your elders, young man. My apologies, Professor. So, he would not speak. He would not converse. But he did mention Miss Mina. And it troubles me deeply. What did he say? Only that he has done what he could for her. That we have been warned and have refused his assistance. After this, he fell silent. Mina Harker's Journal I feel strangely sad and low-spirited today. I suppose it is the reaction from the terrible excitement. I can't quite remember how I fell asleep last night. I remember hearing the sudden barking of the dogs and a lot of queer sounds, like praying on a very tumultuous scale from Mr. Renfield's room, which is somewhere under this. And then there was silence over everything. Silence so profound that it startled me, and I got up and looked out of the window. Not a thing seemed to be stirring, so that a thin streak of white mist that crept with almost imperceptible slowness across the grass towards the house seemed to have a sentience and a vitality of its own. The mist was spreading and was now close up to the house so that I could see it laying thick against the wall as though it was stealing up to the windows. I must have gone to bed, for I had the strangest dream. I thought I was asleep and waiting for Jonathan to come back. The gaslight, which I had left lit for Jonathan, came only like a tiny red spark through the fog, which had grown thicker and poured into the room. It occurred to me that I had shut the window before I had come to bed. I would have got up to make certain on the point, but some leaden lethargy seemed to chain my limbs and even my will. I lay still and endured. That was all. I closed my eyes, but could see through my eyelids. The mist grew thicker and thicker, and I could see now how it came in, for I could see it like smoke, or with the white energy of boiling water pouring in, not through the window, but through the joinings of the door. It got thicker and thicker, till it seemed as if it became concentrated into a sort of pillar of a cloud in the room, through the top of which I could see the light of the gas shining like a pair of red eyes. 
things began to whirl through my brain, just as the cloudy column was now whirling in the room. The last conscious effort which imagination made was to show me a livid white face bending over me out of the mist. As Van Helsing had directed, I undertook the detective work of finding the location or locations of the missing 21 boxes of earth. It did not prove a difficult task, for as the professor had pointed out, there are records of such matters. After a few inquiries, I was led to the home of a Mr. Sam Bloxham, a mover by trade. All right, all right, no need to bloody your knuckles. Well, now, you're an handsome young one, ain't you, though? Mrs. Bloxham. It could be. What's your business? My name is Jonathan Harper. That's your name. What's your business? I'm looking for Sam Bloxham, the mover. I'm interested in a recent movement of some large crates taken from Carfax Abbey. I was hoping that your husband could help. Well... Look here, Governor. You may find Sam soon, or you mayn't, but anyhow, he ain't likely to be in a way to tell you much. Sam is a rare one when he starts in drinking, and just now he's off on a tear. You wait here. I'll see if I can't find the work order on it. Crates, you say? Yes, crates. Large wooden boxes. There should have been 21 in all. All right, all right. Just a moment, Governor. It's your lucky day, then, isn't it? Here we are, 21 crates. Ah, there were six in one cartload, which he took from Carfax and left at 197 Chickson Street, Mile End, Newtown. Those six all to 23 Jamaica Lane, Bermondsey. Nine boxes were delivered to Piccadilly, number 347. That's it, then. Why, yes, thank you. You've been most helpful, and thank your husband for me, please. Now we knew the location of the boxes. If then the Count meant to scatter these ghastly refuges of his over London, these three places were chosen as the first of delivery, so that later he might distribute more fully. Dr. Seward's Diary, 1 October. I am puzzled afresh about Brinfield. His moods change so rapidly that I find it difficult to keep in touch of them. And, as they always mean something more than his own well-being, they form a more than interesting study. This morning, when I went to see him after his repulse of Van Helsing, his manner was that of a man commanding destiny. He did not really care for any of the things of mere earth. He was in the clouds and looked down on all the weaknesses and wants of us poor mortals. I thought I would improve the occasion and learn something. <laughs> and uh, how go the flies these times? The fly, my dear sir, has one striking feature. Its wings are typical of the aerial powers of the psychic faculties. The ancients did well when they typified the soul as a butterfly. Oh. It is a soul you're after now, is it? Oh, no, no. I want no souls. Life is all I want. 
I am pretty indifferent about it at present. Life is all right. I have all I want. You must get a new patient, doctor, if you wish to study zoophagy. Then you command life. You are a god, I suppose. Oh, no. Far be it from me to arrogate to myself the attributes of the deity. I am not even concerned in his especially spiritual doings. If I may state my intellectual position, I am, so far as concerns things purely terrestrial, somewhat in the position which Enoch occupied spiritually. And why do you identify yourself with Enoch? Because he walked with God. So, you don't care about life, and you don't want souls. Why not? I don't want any souls. Indeed, indeed, I don't. I couldn't use them if I had them. They would be no manner of use to me. I couldn't eat them or drink. And... And, Doctor, as to life, what is it, after all, when you've got all you require and you know that you will never want? That is all. I have friends, good friends, like you, Dr. Seward. <laughs> I know that I shall never lack the means of life. Through the cloudiness of his insanity, he saw some antagonism in me, for he at once fell back on the last refuge of dogged silence. After a short time, I saw that for the present it was useless to speak to him, he was sulky, and so I came away. Later in the day, he sent for me. Ordinarily, I would not have come without special reason, but just at present I am so interested in him that I would gladly make an effort. Besides, I am glad to have anything to help to pass the time. Harker is out following up clues, and so are Arthur and Quincy. Van Helsing sits in my study, poring over the record prepared by the Harkers, he seems to think that by accurate knowledge of all details, he will light upon some clue. He does not wish to be disturbed in the work without cause. And in fact, Brinfield might not speak so freely before a third person as when he and I were alone. I found him sitting out in the middle of the floor on his stool, a pose which is generally indicative of some mental energy on his part. When I came in, he said at once as though the question had been waiting on his lips. What about souls? Well, what about them yourself? <clears throat> he did not reply for a moment, but looked all round him and up and down, as though he expected to find some inspiration for an answer. I don't want any souls. You like life, and you want life? Oh, yes, but that is all right. You needn't worry about that. But how is one to get the life without getting the soul also? Hmm? A nice time you'll have sometime when you're flying out there with the souls of thousands of flies and spiders and birds and cats buzzing and twittering all around you. You've got their lives, you know, and you must put up with their souls. Hmm. Hmm. Something seemed to affect his imagination. 
for he put his fingers to his ears and shut his eyes, screwing them up tightly, just as a small boy does when his face is being soaked. There was something pathetic in it that touched me. It also gave me a lesson, for it seemed that before me was a child, only a child, though the features were worn and the stubble on the jaws was white. It was evident that he was undergoing some process of mental disturbance, and knowing how his past moods had interpreted things seemingly foreign to himself, I thought I would enter into his mind as well as I could and go with him. The first step was to restore confidence. So I asked him, speaking pretty loud so that he would hear me through his closed ears, Would you like some sugar to get your flies round again? Not much. Flies are poor things after all. But I don't want their souls buzzing around me all the same. Or spiders. Blow spiders. What's the use of spiders? There isn't anything in them to eat or... He stopped suddenly, as though reminded of a forbidden topic. So, I thought to myself, this is the second time he has suddenly stopped at the word drink. What does it mean? Rinfield seemed himself aware of having made a lapse, for he hurried on as though to distract my attention from it. I don't take any stock at all in such matters. Rats and mice and such small deer... As Shakespeare has it, chicken feed of the larder, they might be called. I'm past all that sort of nonsense. You might as well ask a man to eat molecules with a pair of chopsticks as to try to interest me about the lesser carnivora when I know of what is before me. I see. You want big things that you can make your teeth meet in. How would you like to breakfast on an elephant? What ridiculous nonsense you are talking. I wonder what an elephant's soul is like. I don't want an elephant's soul or any soul at all. To hell with you and your souls. Why do you plague me about souls? Haven't I got enough to worry and pain and distract me already without thinking of souls? Calm yourself, Mr. Rinfield. Mm. Forgive me, Doctor. I forgot myself. I am so worried in my mind that I am apt to be irritable. If you only knew the problem I have to face and that I am working out, you would pity and tolerate and pardon me. Dr. Seward, you have been very considerate towards me. Believe me that I am very, very grateful to you. I thought it well to leave him in this mood, and so I came away. There is certainly something to ponder over in this man's state. Several points seem to be constant with the man. They would tell a tale if one could only get them in the proper order. Here they are. Will not mention drinking. Fears the thought of being burdened with the soul of anything. Has no dread of wanting life in the future, despises the meaner forms of life altogether, though he dreads being haunted by their souls. Logically, all these things point one way. He has assurance of some kind that he will acquire some higher life, 
He dreads the consequence, the burden of a soul. Then it is a human life he looks to, and the assurance. Merciful God, the count has been to him, and there is some new scheme of terror afoot. I went after my round to Van Helsing and told him of my suspicion. He grew very grave, and after thinking the matter over for a while, asked me to take him to Rinfield. I did so. As we came to the door, we heard the lunatic within singing gaily, as he used to do in the time which now seems so long ago. When we entered, we saw with amazement that he had spread out his sugar as of old. The flies, lethargic with the autumn, were beginning to buzz into the room. We tried to make him talk of the subject of our previous conversation, but he would not attend. He went on with his singing, just as though we had not been present. He had got a scrap of paper and was folding it into a notebook. We had to come away as ignorant as we went in. This is a curious case indeed. October 2, morning. Later. Before retiring, we all met again. Arthur Homewood, Quincy Morris, Jonathan Harker, Mina Harker, Van Helsing and myself. We seemed at last to be on the track, and our work of tomorrow may be the beginning of the end. I wonder if Rinfield's quiet has anything to do with this. His moods have so followed the doings of the Count that the coming destruction of the monster may be carried to him in some subtle way. If we could only get some hint as to what passed in his mind between the time of my argument with him today and his resumption of fly-catching, it might afford us a valuable clue. He is now seeming quiet for a spell. The attendant has just come to tell me that Rinfield had somehow met with some accident. He had heard him yell, and when he went to him, found him lying on his face on the floor, all covered with blood. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. I hope you've enjoyed Dracula, because we've got one more week, because I know, I left you a little bit on a cliffhanger there. We've got... A little bit more of Dracula left, but I promise you next week is the last week for Dracula. As I said, I don't know who made this version. There's been no identifiers. There's been nothing on it, but I'm glad they did because this is a really good version of Dracula compared to how bad the book really is. So next week we conclude Dracula and we will have a double feature. That's right. Double features here on Frightening Tales. I can't wait. I get to pick this one. This will conclude tonight's episode of Frightening Tales. But like I said, you want to join us next week for the double feature. Or like Tommy said, join us for the double feature. Plus, I have noticed from a few responses that uh, people are unaware of some of the horror icons, horror pop culture moments. So next week we will start Horror 101 right here on Frightening Tales. <laughs>